Welcome to the podcast It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and today we are here with our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. And we also have our, our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And I'm just going around in a circle. Sorry. Hey, Nate. How you doing? Good. <clears throat> Good to have you. And then we also have Squid Bikes, Ivy Audrain. What's up, Ivy? Good. How are you? What's up? Good. Fantastic. <laughs> uh i'm i'm I'm, hey how are you i'm all over yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm all over the place today i'm trying to produce this thing uh producer maxine is out so if the things are all over the place and not like they normally are i apologize we're even going to try screen sharing later so we might break the whole thing but we'll see i do have like a pull the plug cord that i can rip if everything goes wrong and then we can save the whole thing uh but Let's get into this. If you're joining us on YouTube right now, give it a thumbs up. We appreciate having you here. And if you're listening on whatever podcast app you are list, you typically listen to podcasts on, please rate us five stars if we deserve five stars. And if we don't, let us know. Go to trainerroad.com slash podcast and let us know what we can do to earn the five stars or submit the questions. Uh, we have a bunch of questions to go through this week. If you're joining us in the live chat, you can put in questions toward the end and we'll let you know when and we'll hopefully have some time to cover those. But let's get into Eric's question. He says, Hey, trainer road crew. First off, thanks for the great product and podcast five stars for both. I've been using trainer road for the vast majority of my workouts for about a year now. And I've seen modest FTP gains from about 325 to 350 watts. It's not modest. I don't think that's modest. It's like <laughs> yeah. eight, seven or eight percent. That's a lot. Humble brag. Hey, Nate, do you want 25 watts? Yeah, yeah 25 do you want 25 watts? watts? <laughs> it's like a bit. <laughs> yeah. Ivy, how about you? 25 watts? Like, like seriously, the thinking about Ivy and how long <laughs> you trained, like what would you give to get 25 watts, right? Oh my gosh. Like a limb probably? Yeah, <laughs> I think I would have exactly. the same watts per kilo outcome, probably. Losing a leg, hey, hey, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he says, but huge gains in my ability to repeat max efforts across the power curve. There we go. That's key, right? It's because FTP doesn't tell the whole story. That's a precursor for what we'll get into later. Um, but okay, I have just started to use outdoor workouts, and I'm really enjoying taking some more structure to my outside rides. My question is about maintaining traction on a challenging short climb that leads back to my house. So it's a component of every, it's a component of every ride I do. uh, If I don't drive somewhere, the climb is about 85 meters of elevation at an average grade of around 5%, but there's a critical section in the middle where the grade hits 20%. The surface is somewhat between pavement and gravel. The base is stabilized somehow, but there's loose material on top and I'm riding a road bike because the rest of my routes are on smooth, smooth pavement. I've ridden the hill many times, but I always have trouble maintaining traction on the steepest part. My natural inclination is to stand and drop my cadence for this section, but if my weight moves forward or if I mash at all, the rear tire starts to slip. My technique has been to stay seated and spin around 90 RPM and keep the torque as even as I can around the pedal stroke. But still, I find it fairly taxing to manage the traction at the same time as a very hard effort. Mentions that last time it was three minutes well above threshold with 51 seconds above 150% FTP in the middle. Holy cow. That's a hard effort. So do you have any technique suggestions to maintain traction here? And is it okay to be finishing my workouts with this kind of effort? Uh, I have the Chad, answer. I think that, okay, I let's just it. go into Nate then. I, want, <laughs> yeah, I just want to go. go. I don't read the doc ahead of time, so I'm not part of the flow. I'm the... <laughs> I'm the, you, the you agent of chaos, the wild card. So I went to Moab with Lee McCormick and Moab, if you don't know, has like the steepest, like rock climbs 
you look at this thing and you think, there's no way I can write up this. And there's fear put in your brain that you can do it. And Lee has you do this technique and you're like, that will make me fall over. I'm going to crash and you're going to land on the hard rock and it's going to hurt. You're not going to really get hurt, but it's still scary. And the, it, it made no sense because I never saw a pro climb like this um, in road and stuff. But really the pros that I'm watching aren't climbing stuff this steep. So this is for that really steep stuff where you're going to lose traction. And the technique is you almost stand straight up. And every time that you're pedaling forward, you're pulling the bars into you. And what this does is where the bottom bracket is, you're, you're pushing down, you're pulling the bars into you. And that leverages your bottom wheel into the ground while you're, uh, while you're climbing. It's a little bit, it, it's, it's weird because if you put too much, if you go too forward, like on a road bike, your butt back rail will slip. And you get leverage and it's, I, I got my max power PR ever doing it this way too. It's, it's almost like you're sprinting, standing up, but you're straight up. So he kind of called it, uh, I'll say like making love to the bars too. Uh, Amber said this before too, <laughs> where your hips though are going to get a lot of the power where every time you pull back, your hips are going forward when you're standing up. And what that does is, you know, you're leveraging your, your wheel in every time and you can climb the steepest stuff. I use this technique in mountain bikes. I haven't had the the joy to climb a road section that uh slips like that but <laughs> I, I totally i feel that pain of if you're sitting down it's it's extremely hard to do that and two you can be a much lower cadence when you're standing up and doing that uh doing those um like leverage points to get up that hill mm-hmm. it's amazing and so you don't have to then put out as much power too but you can still get up and the other thing that's really hard to do on this look forward when you look down like your weight gets shifting uh forward you gotta like look up while you do it and they the coaches would yell at you and as soon as you looked up like everything worked better that's that's yeah looking up is a key thing for sure i want to disagree though with the technique side in this specific case because you had you had traction well you had traction as a constant Mm -hmm. right because you were on sandstone when traction is not constant you have to change your technique pretty substantially lisa's do this on dirt too it's not when, not in this sort of scenario, when you're dealing with a hard pack base and then like, we're talking like that firm gravel, that's basically like a, a dirt road that might as well be paved, but on top of it, it's just got that, it's like coarse ground pepper on top. That's you super know? tough on a road bike. Yeah. Chad, uh, you've been riding your gravel bike recently. You got mm-hmm. Converge, mm-hmm. uh, up in Spokane. You have lots of roads actually like this. Am I correct? That's, that's basically all that's out here to the point where if I need a recovery day, I have to resign myself to riding the trainer. And I know that sounds like, you know, <laughs> Dude. that shouldn't come from me, but, <laughs> but if I'm going to do recovery, I would like to go easy outside. I can do everything inside, but when it comes to doing recovery, it's, it's just, there's so much weight on my Chad's retired from training, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> He's retired from it. <laughs> um, but if, but if, I, if it's going to be easy, I'd like it to be scenic. So I can do all the hard stuff inside. I can do the long – I can do everything inside. But when it comes to true recovery, it's just a little too easy. It's actually more painful than I think it needs to be or should be really, right? It's recovery. But uh, – but now it, the roads are just so undulating around here and the pitches are basically what Eric's describing right here. They're high, high uh, severity. He's going up to 20%. I see that occasionally, but by and large, it, it just rolls and, and it rolls 10, 12, 13% sort of stuff. And you just have to gas it up and get over it, which has led me to, you know, certain changes. I, I've designed a bike where it's it's built for the course and the course is, you know, inland Northwest Spokane is, is where I am. Mm. 
And it accommodates these things. And, and uh, first off, I see... Uh, Chad, do you mind if I ask actually really quick, how does it accommodate these things? Are you talking about gearing or are you talking about tire choice? A uh, bit of tire choice, but largely gearing. I think the tire choice, you can make almost any tire work in almost any situation. It may not be optimal, but you can make it work. If you don't have the right gearing, though, you're host. I mean, it, it, you, you can make a slick tire work on a, on a loose gravel trail if you're geared properly. And, and he's, he must be geared pretty well if – and I know he's putting out a greater than 150% for those 50 seconds in order to maintain 90 RPM, which first moral of the story is you don't have to work that hard if you're geared well enough. So first off, look at your gearing, but that's a – that's a broken record. We've talked about that enough times. Uh, in this case, though, don't tie yourself to that 90 RPM. You'd, you'd be surprised what you can do or maybe not. You just need to explore lower cadences in, in situations where traction is uh, at a minimum. Be- mm-hmm. <laughs> spinning 90 RPM at high wattage, uh, either way, if he – it sounds ridiculous to say it, but if he chopped that RPM in half – and drop the watts substantially, yeah, he'd get up the climb slower, but this doesn't sound like a race scenario. So this is basically a lesson that revolves around learning how to appropriately modulate your power. And that's a, a lesson that carries across so many disciplines and so many scenarios. Jonathan? Yeah, Ivy, in cross, you kind of like, sometimes you have a lot of traction and the climbs are short and you're out of the saddle and you just kind of muscle up them. Can you but, want to talk about single speed? Or, oh yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Mm, let's talk about single Please. speeds Be- because uh, a relatively benign gradient kind of replicates this scenario when you have a single speed, right? So, mm-hmm. how do you? But I want to specifically talk about single speeding when traction is tricky, not when traction's great, not when you're going up a grass hill and you have great traction, but when it's hard. What do you do? Um, everything that Chad just said about modulating your power is so valid, and I think there's kind of a misconception that if you're running a higher cadence, you're not working as hard. And so if you're not able to run a slower cadence and not modulate your power, then you're doing it wrong. So with single speed specifically, or if your axis battery dies, uh, yeah, dude. Chad, <laughs> that's, that's, Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's exactly what happened. So I effectively created my own single speed, you know, it's a new bike day and, and I go out and I know that Emirates at home. So if I get myself in a bad spot, uh, I can get picked up. Um, I'm not above doing that by the way. I've done it a couple times already and fail to recognize the fact that, uh, I thought the battery was charged, but I don't, I don't really know how to see on the, on the battery itself, how you can tell. I can, it, Probably yeah. on the app. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, or uh, even on your Garmin too, Chad. Uh, your Garmin can give you mm-hmm. <coughs> yep. battery indication. So many up. ways. I set that up exactly. <laughs> All these things are a distant memory because the last time I used any of this equipment was you know a few months ago. So it's gone. It's just, it's just not in there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I got out and, and was riding, and then realized, oh, she's out during her, doing her thing, and she's quite a ways away. So I need to make this work. And what happened was I have a. 38 ring up front and then I have uh, Eagle XX XXO or XX1 in bag. Either way, it's a the whole 1052 gear range. I've got everything you could possibly need with a one by. But I got stuck in the 14, so I'm two up from the bottom. <laughs> so a 38 14 is good and fine for a heck of a lot of grades, but the grades that I just described, these rolling grades that can pitch up to, you know, into the low teens, low to mid teens. That means you're relegated to a, a low cadence, and it's going to be high power output if, if the grade is steep enough. And I found myself riding, especially on the, the few rollers that 
bring me back up to my house at the end of every ride and then the climb that precedes those rollers, it's, it's a bit of a slog. And I touched low 20s. Low 20s at, you know, like mid 300 watts just to keep the bike upright. <laughs> Always knowing that I can't stop and walk, but I thought, I want to show myself I can do this. I want to see if I can do this. But my point is, and, and yes, that's I, how his knee injury started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would think <laughs> that. We can talk about that. <laughs> we can talk about that. But it, this is, and, and we say power modulation, but what we're talking about is even power distribution. And it's not even power distribution to the pedal stroke because the pedal stroke is what it is. You know, you have a downstroke and you have an upstroke. That's never going to be even. But the transfer from one leg's downstroke to the next leg's downstroke can be extremely even. And you'll still see undulations when you look at the power file, but on the course, you know, as you're riding up these hills, it's very steady. Because if you give that tire an opportunity to slip, you can bet it's going to jump on it. And and, and it shakes everything up, makes everything tough. And that's when feet come out of the pedals and you're stuck on a steep grade walking up it. So learning how to effectively transfer downstroke power to downstroke power, leg to leg, is a necessary skill, especially if you're going to come up against scenarios like this. And, and this is on the road with a bit of gravel on it. On a trail, it's, it's a whole other situation, a whole other set of new complexities yeah. are introduced. But this is something I've everyone e- needs to know how to do. And a single speed or locking yourself into an effective single speed with either a dead battery or intentionally is, is a good way to figure out how good, I'm, how good am I at this sort of thing. Ivy, you, how does 91 RPM sound? Because to me, it sounds a little too high, if I'm honest, for a steep climb like this. Oh, yeah. Where, where traction's tricky. Totally. And that drill, I guess, that Chad was just talking about is something that we should all be incorporating into our training. And I remember the first time that I kind of forcibly had to do it on a single speed when I think it was pre-writing a course, so I didn't want to go as hard as I would have in the race Mm. and I didn't really understand how to pedal slowly without pedaling hard and so my only way to understand pedaling easy was to pedal really fast and faster is not easier so for a steep climb like this like we know there are you have to put out some sort of baseline of power to not fall over so for Chad with like it was 300 ish watts just to not tip over so we understand that you can't go super easy, low power when you're climbing up a hill like this, but higher cadence doesn't fix that issue, especially with traction. Should we talk about trucks, big truck guys? Like, yeah. <laughs> think about yeah. like driving up a gravel road and like towing something, if it's gravelly, and you press on the pedal really fast, you immediately start to peel out. So you're creating high RPMs, not enough traction, you have to go slow in those scenarios. Same is true with bikes. Yeah. You really want to smooth out the torque, right? If you're, if your torque at any point in that cadence is too high and then too easy, too high, too easy, that's just going to make traction difficult. If you could normalize it so that it's the same all the way across, which quadrant drills that Chad has within the workout text, when you're following your trainer road plan and cadence drills that are going to be worked into that, when you're doing those things, that's what really allows you to be able to feel the muscle contractions, feel the tension, feel that sort of consistent power and be able to, to carry it through. So yeah, it's the Nate, please. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to double down and this is going to be one of those yeah. drop or post road bike things. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to, I used to think the same as all of you, like completely, and then I fought Lee and the coaches on it and told them how wrong they were. <clears throat> and then I experienced this on different bikes on different services. And it, the, it's the leverage point because you actually get more by by if it's the pulling the bike down and 
granted too on a mountain bike mm -hmm. or gravel bike you'll have more leverage back just the way because where the bottom bracket is and how long the tail is um but it is insane about i i about getting up steep stuff even in cape epic uh there were everyone was lined up and the steep stuff and this is coming from me john you've seen me go up steep stuff i'm the first one to unclip there were sections sure. on that where we were in remember that really fast day where we mm -hmm. like, I guess it was the only day I did. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> the one day, which day it is. <laughs> the one day. Um, there was a section where, so we were with really good, fast, you know, riders who presumably have good skills in a very steep section. And I think I was one of the only people who didn't walk on a section, which is insane for me just because I'm doing this technique. And it, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to send this to Lee later and Lee's going to call you and then you so guys Lee's can. Lee's right. No, but I, on, right. on road too, he'll say. <clears throat> Oh, on road, absolutely he's right. But when you get into sections where traction's truly difficult to maintain, instead of you moving your pelvis forward, you want to keep your pelvis planted into the saddle and create that same exact leverage that Lee's talking about. You just create it differently. Because if you move your hips too far forward, it's not enough traction on a tire that's slick on ground that is really, really slick. You don't, don't move your hips forward. Based it's on, right above I, the bottom bracket. Yeah, based on a couple of things. First off, the, Lee has opened my eyes to things that I would have thought, nope, that's just not going to work. And it, and it has. And secondly, Nate's been right about these things over the long term too many times <laughs> for me to say, no, nah, no way. He's just wrong. Yeah. So I, I do think and, – and it's not just Lee's expertise and, and brilliance that I that there are things that you just look at and you're like, that's not going to work. And then you try it and it works. And I think maybe this is one of those things to the point where I'm interested we need clarity here. And I really want to make sure that I'm clear. I'm not saying that Lee is wrong. So <laughs> can we please get that out of the, out of the way? Lee is right. You accomplish the same thing in slightly different ways, depending on how slick the surface is that you're on and the gearing or tires that you're limited by. It doesn't mean that it looks totally different. It's the same thing. It's accomplished slightly differently. If I'm on slick rock, Heck yeah. I'm going to be out of the saddle because of the reason, the fact that I don't have to worry about as much traction on that back wheel. And as a result, I can create that tension through my body and through the rider triangle that Lee talks about. And I can have it right there, wait in the right spot and be powering up. We no, So we, the, I, I don't know if I'm describing it right, but this is for when only you have bad traction. We practiced on the rock because it was lower consequence, but this is for when you don't have traction. And it's the, and it is not smooth torque. It's the opposite. It's spikes of torque because at the same time you're leveraging and by leveraging, you're tripling your traction at those points. Uh, hmm. I think this is a good one. You know what we should do? We should do a little like other, like I'll, I'll call Lee, we'll cut it up and just have him explain. We can put on one of our social channels just to see, and then people yeah. can try it out and see what, what happens. And hopefully John Lee just goes, Nate, you're totally wrong. Like in this situation, do what John says, but is I don't think you guys are right. And is, is what he's right. describing the, <laughs> his row anti row, or you're effectively pumping into the downstroke? So no, that it's you not, do get traction no. at the right time. That's not different. That. Yeah, hmm. I, he explains it yep. so much better. This is the other problem: is that there's I had that one like I, I can't explain things as well as Lee can, and he is so uh, you know eloquent in his shred yeah. shaman language. Yeah, uh, shred shamanism. Well, we're all right, in my opinion. Here, Wait, we didn't. <laughs> so we didn't uh, answer Eric's question. And is it okay to be finishing my workouts with this kind of effort? Exactly. That's where I was going, and then Nate was like, "I got this. I want to jump in." Uh, <laughs> yeah. Chad, let's cover that part. 
uh, we actually discussed this on a recent podcast, and I can't remember which episode right now, but whether hard efforts at the end of the ride was last week. end up being de- detrimental. Was it really last mm-hmm. week? Jeez. Sorry. Yeah. Brain soup. Uh, Chad, can you just give us a quick recap on this? If he's finishing all of his rides with 50 seconds at 150% FTP and surrounding that, it looks like he's around 120% for quite a while with yep. this deep section. That's a hard effort. That's like a really hard vo2 interval it is and it's i mean i'm i mean exactly in the same boat i mean i i live where i live and i have to climb at the end of every ride unless i want to ride up which i've I've been reduced to a couple of times but i don't choose it i try to leave at least enough gas in the tank that i can get home and in the case where i was stuck in a gear which is why i'm pushing the whole get enough gears to be able to accommodate this sort of thing and if you don't have those gears well you're going to have to resign yourself to some level of intensity so it just is what it is if you have the option to avoid this yes it's it's a little easier to wind down because everything he's describing flies in the face of what we want to achieve with a warm down or cool down and that means he's he's going to finish his ride in a, in a more elevated state than i as a coach would like to see and he as an athlete would like to experience but it is what it is. This is where he lives. I mean, if he's okay with hopping off the bike and walking up as his cool down, that's one thing. But I don't know too many cyclists who are okay with that. You put a challenge in front of them and they go after it. I've, I have to surmount this. I have to beat this. I can't let it be me. So so I get that, which again, it's, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recap for Like oh, roll yeah. around in the driveway after you've done that's that? Ex- just like that's exactly what I do. I have to, and, and my driveway even has a little bit of a slope in it, so I got to roll up it <laughs> and turn around it's and roll huge. down it on the brakes. But <laughs> Chad, it's you a should have a race like out there. You should put on a Chad Timmerman race. Oh, oh like I'm all, race. I'm all over it. I, I've been mapping out courses and stuff that I, I would have to get minimal road closures and would introduce the the most level of fun with the least level of danger and but you know enough excitement so it's it's constantly Ooh. on my mind is like right out here beer sponsors like you could get a whole bunch oh, of sponsors yeah. on on tap for you in mm. washington because you're on close tap. to spokane right i'm in spokane i'm just okay, spokane. Just, just outside of it it's called south Why? hill but it's just but you're close sponsor? enough for seattle and stuff mm. to like drive right seattle uh, portland people yeah can come in like a f- four-hour drive canadians too this oh is, yeah for sure mm-hmm so last week, Nate, you said that if we got 100 likes, Chad would appear. <laughs> now what I'm thinking is we raise the bar and we say by next week's podcast, if this has 2,500 likes, what do you think? Then if it has 2,500 likes, then Chad, then we, we move forward with a Chad Timmerman gravel race, which has got to have a wonderful yeah, name. Chad, you, so this is how we do it. Okay. Business hat on. Uh, <laughs> one, it's not a train to road one. It's a Chad Timmerman one just for liability. You're going to start start your own LLC. And then we get another. Don't worry. We're not on the hook. Just Chad is. <laughs> no, no matter yeah, what. My LLC. That's cool. Even if we had our own like presented by train to road, which would, of course, we would be a main sponsor of this. Uh, you would still have another <laughs> LLC to do it and waivers and stuff like that. But if anyone knows a race director in that area, they come to do it. It's branded with you. You work with them, mm-hmm. but then they do all this stuff because you haven't put a big mm-hmm. race like this. Um, oh, no, trust then, me. This, yeah. keep, I'm and, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. This is exactly the lines along which I'm thinking. And then we can help advertise it, right, outside of that and try mm-hmm. to make it a really cool race. And we can get pros there and maybe a prize purse, stuff like that. It would be really cool. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like, like the idea. idea. Yeah. It's exciting. We've always actually – so we've talked about this many years – I've always wanted to have it where um, part of our, like the money we make can put on races for people. And I've, I've so wanted to do my own race series, but I just don't have the time and I have ideas for it. 
this could be a good starting off point is I like the idea that people pay for train road. And then part of that helps create races. Um, <laughs> you know, at first it'd probably mm-hmm. be around us, but just more races in cycling, even if it's not in Bayou, that will create more people in cycling. The companies get more money. They innovate more. Everything goes better. Like the more people cycling, I think it's better for everybody uh, who does. Um, I think it'd be so cool. Uh, and gravel, I think, is the way to, to do it. It's safe, fun, mm-hmm. inclusive. Everyone can it's do the it. the most so accessible. Race. Yeah, and it's beautiful out there, right? Not racing. It is. It's gorgeous, <laughs> especially this time of year. So, so I mean, I, I wouldn't mind celebrating all the seasons, but especially the shoulder seasons. It's incredibly beautiful out here, and the dirt is is better and better, and the trails are a little less dusty and and whatnot. But I find myself doing what Jonathan would do. He, I know he stops and takes six photos. I instead just pull my <laughs> phone out and snap about a thousand, hoping that one of them is recognizable and captures or frames the scene well. But it is a place that I think a lot of people would like to spend time on their bikes. Have you ever been to one of those concerts where like they take your phones when you get there? So you can't, mm. yes. uh, you can't, you know, worst. Well, it, they want you to be present, but also I understand it would be nice for us to not have any content come out and we could do a beers with Chad. That's just there. Uh, where everyone's phone. Wait, are you saying like at, after the race, we want content to come out, <laughs> not a beers with Chad content. Oh yeah. No, we don't want that. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about a private beers with Chad. Um, at the, <laughs> at the end. <laughs> okay. Like in his, uh, giant Ooh. garage thing or something. I think it's how many square feet is that? Oh, my shop. Whatever it is. Uh, yeah, that's where we do. I think yeah. it's 30 by 60 or something, or 40 by 60. I don't know. It's, it's large. It's a big gym and a basketball court and all the fun things. We have a great name for, suggestion for this event in the live mm-hmm. chat from DJ called Gears with Chad. Gears with Chad. <laughs> nice. We need your name suggestions. Go into the comments on this YouTube video. Let us know. Go to the forum and let us know if this idea interests you too. Trainerroad.com slash forum. There's already a post for this episode. This is episode 364, and you can find it there. Or let's create a new thread about uh, the Chad Timmerman Gravel Invitational Ooh. that we'll have. Uh, it'll be a good time. Ch- Nate. Chad, if you can get me involved in this, and I'll probably be way more involved than I should be, like mm-hmm. versus Trainer Road. Um, here's my pet peeve. Ice at aid stations. Y'all, mm-hmm. We all need cold ice at aid stations, and I would like to Not have hot it. bottles. <laughs> and uh, hot, I don't get it. Yeah, <clears throat> another idea I had, and every, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but people put in here if you like this idea. I like the idea that if you have like a certain color um, number plate, you can get an ice cold bottle, and if not, you don't. So then, if you, what you do is you can pay a little extra, um, maybe ten bucks extra or fifteen, so that. Bottles can be made and you can just exchange bottles because for the racers, having exchange a cold bottle of water is so nice. And for the people who don't care, the race is cheaper for them. Uh, I think that's a good like uh, middle point that the people who want it can get it and the people who don't can just do the, you know, they can go up and fill their things with uh, ice cold water, their bottles. (laughs) Do you like that idea, John? Do you wish the racers would do that? Would you pay 10 extra bucks to get ice cold bottles for handoffs, Ivy? Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. Like... Uh, also i really like the concept of like itemizing why the price is what mm-hmm. it is and being like we're using these 10 extra dollars to make sure that you have ice cold bottles like who is going to get upset at that everyone's going to be happy about that mm-hmm. right like <laughs> i don't understand why yeah. we always get hot and you have number plates bottles. you could even have a different color number plate right it's like the blue Easy. ones are the bottles and uh i bet you could too do uh whoever the nutrition sponsor is do like a so if it's scratch, have a scratch bottle and a water and you just yell out what you want when you get up there. It'd be amazing. 
I would like that I'd for like sure. That too. Oh, there's so many ideas that we could do. Chad, would would you want to do it like a, a an enduro style format that's like optional, where like you can just ride this thing and have fun with your friends, and then you can have segments that you push on? Both. I'm doing that in Stetna's race this weekend. Mm-hmm. Versus just like goes from the gun and it's like a full race the whole way through. I think kind of what we're talking about. Why couldn't you incorporate that? Now you have the the enduro riders have like brown plates with yellow numbers, sort of thing. So you know everyone. Yeah. The, yeah. This is what. So this is just like the Tour de France. You know, like the the people who get the climbers jersey or something, or uh, mm-hmm. sprinters jersey. They don't. <clears throat> you're not necessarily the best climber. I think you do it just all in the same race. So there's an overall winner, but also mm-hmm. segment winners can also win too. But you're not different races. You're in the same race, and then you can have different payouts for each one, and you have different podiums for each one. So someone who won one segment that's a downhill segment maybe got eight hundredth, but then there's also an overall winner that is like the prestigious GC winner. That person might win one of the climbs, but they might not. Uh, and then everyone has, if you're riding slow, you have an area to do something awesome. But if you want to gun it and go for the overall, you can do that too. Like mm-hmm. A little bit for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe, yeah. Yeah. It, it, you can even do a point. Mm. I like the idea too of like points. So whatever you score on that, you get. So the overall winner might not actually win because they didn't hit the downhill section as fast as somebody else did who got second place. Mm. And they didn't take a bacon hand up, which is like yeah. one point each. Or because it's Chad race. <laughs> <laughs> drink, no drink beer, negative points. That's a part of the fun party part of it. But for the actual racing, mm-hmm. I like a little bit of strategy in it and the fitness combined yeah. with the actual racing strategy. Uh, that would be really, really cool to do that. And I don't necessarily good- want to reward overconsumption on a I, I do want to devise a relatively safe course, but I still want it to be exciting. I still want it to have challenges. And if you're sloppy drunk, I, I'm pretty sure you won't be up to those challenges. We'll just have bacon, Chad. No, no beer. Bacon, <laughs> bacon during beer after. Okay. Uh, I wonder too, like what would be a – Ivy, what is a good split even prize purse, like total prize purse split even for a race? To get pros to get like there. Like what you consider to be like, yeah, okay, sufficient to get pros there? Yeah, be like, hey, that's a good that's a good prize purse overall to get pros there. Oh, um, like are you talking the distribution of 50-50 or like what is a number? Yeah, so like, you, you know, uh, what does Epic Rides do? They might have a, what, a $50,000? Depends, $50, I think they, they'll have like a $50,000 purse for uh, Bentonville, I think is their biggest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I could be wrong, Todd, I'm sorry if I'm wrong on that. And it's split evenly. <clears throat> between men and women. Well, I think to get pros there, that's tricky. And overall prize purses, when you look at them at a glance, are kind of deceiving because you see, like, for example, a five grand prize purse, but in reality, it only pays like three three deep. Um, and then everyone else gets nothing. Or you can see a five grand prize purse and the person that wins maybe only makes their registration back, but then they pay 30 deep. And a ton of people that, you know, are stoked just to get 20th still get a little bit yeah. of payout. And that's we, that's great. Yeah. So We'd probably the number mimic- is hard because it doesn't represent the distribution and how deep the payout goes. But, okay, so if we mimicked Epic Rides, let's say it's 50, I'll do 51,000 just to, so, <laughs> so Todd has to up his. <laughs> we um, like Todd. Yeah. But I mean, for us, <laughs> it's, good for Todd. it is a marketing effort too, right? Because we talk about it a lot. Yeah. It's good. So we would put it into our marketing budget. And I'm sure... Uh, maybe and it depends on how we structure it get some of that money back from race registration or something like that but that would be a uh 
I, I guess I guess we would be running this, Chad. Me and you, <laughs> we do our own business yeah. and do that, and have mm-hmm. people come in and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, you're, yeah. you're definitely and asking you, and, the wrong person as the kind of professional that doesn't even look at that stuff. If there's a race that I want to go to that aligns <laughs> so, with my calendar that won't break the bank for me to go to. Prize did, prize purse is a bonus. Like I don't care. Right. If we did 50k, do you think we get the best gravel races in the U.S. gravel racers to come? Oh yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. For sure, yes. especially considering where Chad is in Spokane, and you're close to. Um, uh, ooh, I don't want to like trash Durango. Durango is so sick, but like, it's so hard to get there. You have to like fly to Denver and then mm. to car and drive. Like, it's easy to fly and travel in and out of Spokane. Like, it's not like some yeah obscure hard to get to place. So I think you can get a lot of people to come out. Mm. Okay, you better do this, Chad. Good point. Actually, yeah, no, we I think need a race right? director to email us. And to figure out if we, uh, <laughs> if this is even because I don't think we can put this on without a, a race director who's experienced. Oh yeah, we need people that know what they're doing. Yeah, it's no, vital. No, we I'm have a gonna, lot of enthusiasm. Ideas, to the ground up. <laughs> we're ideas yeah. guys, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's. Uh, this is a good one. Once again, if you're interested in this, give this video likes. Um, if we get to 2,500, then we will pursue this forward. So go to YouTube. Give it likes, and that's how we'll make this happen if you're interested in it. Go to the forum and check it out. Let's go into Dean's question. I'm pretty new to cycling, but as with most of my hobbies, I jumped in headfirst. I have a lot of questions around kit, and I'm hoping you guys and gals can do a deep dive on cycling kits, what to wear, how it should fit, different seasons and weather conditions, changing while riding, etc. It seems like a straightforward topic, but then I'll see a picture of a pro and it looks like they're wearing two of the exact same jersey or something else that I just don't grasp. <laughs> That's a really valid point. That would be really confusing if you looked at most pro cyclists. Um, appreciate and uh, appreciate the advice you have on what to wear and wh- and how to wear it. Uh, Ivy, do you want to start with like the... Actually, I'm going to ask you questions and then how about this? Then you'll answer those questions. So first of all, uh, what's the point of a skin suit and should an average person have a skin suit? The point of a skin suit is aerodynamics and comfort. And should the average person have a skin suit? Average person being a racer. I I'm saying like a person that's like training to race that sort of thing. That's yeah. our average. Um, all this stuff, skin suits, super technical gear, really specific pieces for really specific conditions are things that if you can afford and if they're accessible and if it makes sense for you and if you're comfortable wearing it, then you should do it. And if you don't feel comfortable wearing it and you don't feel like it makes you feel better and ride faster, that should be the ultimate goal when looking at all of these pieces, especially when looking at what the pros are doing. Um, You could break the bank trying to have pieces that pros have because you think it will make you faster. But ultimately, if you're not comfortable and it doesn't make you feel like you're riding faster, then it's not worth it. So the same goes for mm. skin suits. Yes, there's a performance element, but if you're brand new to racing and you just don't dig it and it doesn't feel comfortable and you don't feel like it's making the difference for you, then don't do it. it what do you do when it's cold? What's your preferred layering system? What pieces do you have? Okay, this is a good question. Um, more layering doesn't necessarily help. I think when it's really cold or when it's raining too, your goal shouldn't be, um, you should be thinking about staying dry once you get sweaty because that's the biggest challenge when it's cold is you're still working and still your body's still working and making sweat. And then that's when you get really, really cold is when your when your clothing doesn't wick sweat well, and then you're soggy and also cold, and then you get really, really cold. So when it's cold, 
Try to wear stuff that wicks sweat well. And for some people, looser clothes help that. So like when it's really cold, some of the most comfortable things I've worn are like wool long sleeves and like a loose flannel over the top. And then I have like really good air movement and Nate hates that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Keep going, Abby. I know what Nate's laughing about. <laughs> we'll It'll come out us. eventually yeah. with okay. this conversation. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. don't think that um, spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a really high technical piece means that you will be warmer or more comfortable. It doesn't. Um, try to see what mm-hmm. feels comfortable for you. Flannels are okay. Uh, Nate? What, what, what would you say to this one in terms yeah. of like, uh, do you have favorite pieces of kit or different rules you like to follow for layering, whatever else? When it's super cold, what I like to do is like, I get my trainer right next to the window and just look outside while it snows <laughs> <laughs> as I ride inside. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, uh, it, so around here we have descents and that is exactly what kind of what Ivy's talking about. You sweat on the up and then down you freeze because of the big descents happening. So it is, I have certain temperatures that I think of and I do like a vest. I have a lightweight vest that I can pack up and put into my, um, pocket. And that is from uh, mission workshop. That's like a, a little known brand, but it, it makes pretty cool stuff. And that, I really like that vest. Really really it's nice very stuff. slim. Um, and then the next one up, if it's colder or slightly rain, uh, or it's warm and it's a little bit rainy, um, I use the, uh, Rafa vest. So vest is my first one because what you do is as you climb, you unzip it and you don't sweat as much. And then when you descend, you zip it up. And when it gets really hot later in the day, you put it in your pocket. Um, you can't do that with the Rafa one, but you can do that with the mission one, mission workshop one. Next one is arm warmers. Is your Rafa one like thicker? Is yeah, that you why can, you can't put it into Rafa a pocket? Rafa does make ones that. Oh, yeah, yes. they do. But the one that I'm thinking of, it's like a, it's literally called rain vest. So it is thicker mm. and warmer. And there's one level up of that also that John has. It's like a thermal lined vest. Cycling is so expensive. You guys. Just in the front. It's yeah. it's really nice. It's like fuzzy insulation in the front that's very low profile. And then in the back, it's mesh. Yeah. So it's that's, really nice. That one's yeah. really cool. And I mean, cool, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That one's great in the winter, too. <laughs> yeah, because for descending, when you unzip it, it's really uh, the back is open. So you get the wicking. Arm warmers next because you can actually take those off of your racing. And leg warmers after that. And leg warmers are only ones if I'm going to be riding the whole day or... Um, I mean, if you have to stop and take them off, that's annoying. They're always huge to put in. So I try not to do leg warmers if I, if I can't. And if I do a race, I don't think I've ever worn maybe a cold cross race, but I really try not to do leg warmers because you cannot take them off. I just do embro and then suffer. And then I'm hot within like an hour. Um, <laughs> and then gloves, gloves are a huge one. Your finger is getting cold is the worst. And what you do is you want to take your glove when you buy one, it's kind of gross, but you blow on it to see if you can blow air through it. Um, if you can blow air through it, it's not windproof and your fingers are going to freeze in any glove you have. But if you can't blow air through it, it's probably going to be better. And then from there, you get the thin ones that just are, are proof. And then you get my use Rafa like a winter one. And I still have bad circulation. I think you do too, John. Like my fingers just get cold mm-hmm. no matter what. Um, but Rain if you work hard enough, it doesn't. What'd you say? <laughs> Raynaud's gang, stand up. Yeah, that's, that's not even me. I don't. Marfan syndrome, stand up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, also before the before the leg warmers, I will usually do. I have like a band that I wear that covers my ears because that's another thing. When you're descending, your ears can get so cold, and I don't like a full hat because I get too hot and sweaty. But a band that like it's like a little headband that covers both ears uh, that can be warm. It's kind of like earmuffs, but. 
It also keeps sweat out of your face. It is, it's, they're very, very nice and they're really easy to take off and put in your pocket. Yep. That's my go-to jam. How about you, Chad? Uh, I'd like to get a little more overarching for a second before I get specific. And I see all of this. Clothing is one of these things that falls on the spectrum of nice to haves and needs to have needs need to haves. So basically, your wants and your needs. And when we talk about skin suits and optimizing aerodynamics and and making and perfecting comfort, getting as close to it as we can, considering how uncomfortable our sport can be. I think it's a little too easy to move yourself toward the, the, the wants and, and away from the needs. What Nate just described was largely leaning toward the need side. You need a glove that doesn't let the wind through if you want to keep your fingers warm. You need a layer that allows you to, 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 to breathe and also shed sweat and, and protect you from rain. And all the, those, those things make sense to me. The things that make less sense to me, especially from the perspective of people who aren't at the pointy end of things, are, are kind of what I want to harp on just briefly. It's I think people start to shift their focus toward the things that they feel like they need to have, but they really just want to have them because this is what the pros use. Well, the pros use these because their spectrum between wants and needs has shrunken drastically. What they want <laughs> and what they need gets closer and closer together because as they get more and more competitive, they need those things to remain competitive. You're not going to see a professional rider in a Tour de France time trial go out in a, an ill-fitting skin suit. They need top-level aerodynamic fabrics and comfort to go with it in order to be competitive. But club racers and you know lower categorized racers don't need that. It's a nice to have, but you can still be very competitive. You can still feel the thrill and uh, the excitement that goes with being in in a competitive time trial, whatever it may be. But again, it's so easy to get distracted by all the things you think you have to have in order to be as, as to, to to be a legit racer, a legit bike racer, to be to be taken seriously. All that stuff is kind of nonsense to a point. It becomes more important as you become more competitive, but got to keep those priorities in line. Great I, advice, Chad. I have a another thought because I didn't ask about just regular kit fitting. Um, how do, what do you all think about this? That I think a close fitting kit, like a very tight kit no matter what the body type is better and looks better on everybody than a loose and baggy kit. It's kind of like, not like skin, like it's latex on you, mm. but that mm -hmm. kind of race fit. Um, and uh, before you guys all answer this too, I want to tell everybody I have pretty low body fat. I, you know, I have abs and stuff, but when I lean over on a bike and I have a tight kit, like I have rolls right from around my, my belly button. I think that happens with just about everyone. Cause you're compressing your body and your skin and you might not see the Tour de France riders that because they are the lowest body fat riders in the world. Uh, but in general, it's, yeah, like good fitting clothes, no matter what the body type looks better than baggy clothes. And I think we can all be a little self-conscious because we're like, this is tighter than anything I've worn in my entire life for my entire body. And I'm going to go out on the road so everyone can see me. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think that in many cases, it's just comfort first for me whatever that comfort is. And for some people, something really tight may be uncomfortable, but I do like the point of pointing out, Nate, that uh, it shouldn't be based on what the perception of others. It should be purely based on how we feel, yeah. right? Like, and if we feel a certain way that we like in a certain type of kit, then that's what we should go for. And that'll probably evolve and change over time too. Like it might ebb and flow. 
And that's, uh, I think that that's really, I think that's really important. The hardest part with this is that I find that if you spend more money, the kit tends to be made of better quality fabrics. It tends to fit a little better and it's, and it's frustrating. And I bet that there are companies out there that make kit that isn't really prohibitively expensive that also performs well. Because I remember when I first got into cycling, the jerseys that I was getting were, were like pretty thick. They weren't cotton, but they were really thick. And uh, I remember like the, the chamois was really bad and uh, the fabric started to wear out. So like after six months, I was like, I looked at it in the mirror and I was like, oh my gosh, I bet I'm revealing everything to everybody behind me. This is terrible. You were. So <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in this, it, it, it's you can spend a bit more and go with brands. Like I know like Velocio, uh, I know they have really expensive stuff, but I know they have a bit cheaper stuff too. And they make great stuff. Eliel, I believe is the company or Eliel. Don't know how to uh, <clears throat> pronounce it. Eliel, they're a company that sponsors Ivy. And I think they also make a good kit that also is reasonably priced. That doesn't, that doesn't have all the downsides of really cheap stuff that you would find. Uh, a specific example of how this will change your experience. When you have a thick Jersey on, it tends to cause like no real good benefits. And here's why a thick Jersey or Jersey with like thick material in the summer, that's obviously going to be hot and uncomfortable. And you'll ride with the thing unzipped out all the time because of that in the winter, you'll want to have something on top of it because it's probably too cold to just wear a Jersey. So now you have a really thick piece of fabric against your skin and it's probably going to cause you to sweat. Those thinner jerseys, and you'll notice that from companies like Velocio or Eliel or anything else, the, the thinner jerseys are really nice, and it just makes a big difference, I've found. So for me, I like to have thin jerseys, I like to have arm warmers, and then I like to have a vest that I can, and I and I err on the side of a slightly like thicker vest that I can unzip, like Nate was talking about the vest that I use, because if I unzip it, it's almost like I'm wearing nothing. And if I have those three items of jer- a thin jersey, and then I have a vest and then I have arm warmers, I can get through a lot of different conditions with just that setup and I can be okay. Now, if it goes into more inclement weather, then yeah, of course, then you have to talk about getting a jacket um, and maybe some bib tights or something like that. But that's typically the most that I put on uh, when it's colder or inclement weather is I just use that stuff. So you don't need a ton. You can really simplify and you can get tons of different types of vests, tons of different types of jackets. You can get different bibs that are made for winter. If you're going to do that, don't get winter bibs that are short, get winter bibs that are long that go all the way down your legs. Cause there's no point in getting them that are just short. Um, but you really don't need a whole lot of items. I think a lot of cyclists could get by with just bibs, Jersey vest and arm warmers. It gets you through quite a lot. So, and Dean, so asks don't put about- pressure on yourself, Sam, to break the bank or sorry, not Sam, uh, Dean, Dean. to break the bank. Yeah. Yeah. And Dean asks about changing while riding. I want to point out that it is normal to plan on changing pieces while you're riding, especially like wind stuff, counting on putting on like a wind jacket on a descent or something. Or if you have really cold hands, planning on putting on a starting with a really warm pair of gloves and putting on a light, lighter pair later. That stuff is normal. Ooh, I see. I also want to normalize stopping to switch out stuff too, uh, in groups, especially. Uh, I, even if you can, uh, so like I I'm very comfortable with taking a vest out of a pocket, putting it on, doing arm warmers. If I'm riding with people that I don't really know, I'm, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to put them in a situation where that might scare them and make them uncomfortable. Like you, you kind of had to keep that present too. So it's okay to just say, Hey, I'm going to stop and put this stuff on. 
and and or take this stuff off, whatever it might be. Another cool they, one I've sorry. seen. It wasn't Pete because Pete doesn't wear gloves, but you wear the wind gloves, but below you have the regular road gloves that you wear, and then you can just take it off with like a with your mouth, and you're like, hey, now I'm good. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times we start so early. Uh, at least in this high desert. And then, you know, uh, 30, 40 minutes in, you're fine. You don't need them anymore. And that allows, especially if you're training alone, you're on a climb, you get really hot. You don't have to stop on that climb. Uh, it's nice. But some things you do obviously have to stop to do it. Don't be the person, unless this is a good, really good point. Unless you really know the people, don't be the person in the group ride who's like taking their vest off. Uh, if you're going to do that, go to the back of the ride. This would frustrate me in races. And uh, I saw someone break their arm because of this. Like someone in the middle of the Peloton's like, I'm a good racer. And they're like, you know, I've seen pros do this. So they're going no handlebars, taking off their vest. Uh, just get off the back, like do it there. Don't yeah. show off in front of everyone. I, 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 I really wish there was like a, we would just eject those people from the race. Like you take both hands off the bar <laughs> to do anything in, in the middle of a Peloton. That's, that's unsafe. We're not pros. Like I want to get home. I want to go home. If it's pros, then that's one thing. Yeah, it's a right? job. If it's not pros, yeah, exactly. I saw that video. I don't know if you saw Chad, but of one of the Alpes and Phoenix riders, I believe that's still their team sponsor name, <laughs> uh, in the middle of the Giro, took a bottle and then took the cap off, put it in his bottle cage, the upright bottle cage, kept the cap in his mouth, reached back, grabbed some hyd- or some electrolyte mix, then put the electrolyte mix in the bottle and then kept going and then put it back on all this time with no hands while he's doing all this in the middle of the Peloton. Mm, And everyone was like, Oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's super amazing. But if you look, instead of looking at him, look at the riders around him. A lot of them, you can see even in the pro Peloton, (laughs) they're like, what are you doing, man? Like you could see they're kind of like, "Uh, look, it's one thing to do, you know, a a subtle move, take off your vest, something like that. Um, but even then, you know, unforgivable, get on, get on the radio, tell, tell your driver, your Swanee or whoever's going to hand you the drink, put a little drink mix in it. (laughs) I mean, did these guys yeah. really have to cover this on their own? Because I feel like there are they, people who are staffed specifically to do these things. You can yeah, do that. Yeah, send your back to the car and get one for you. Come on, man. You could do it one-handed too, right? I could take it out, do do all that for stuff real. one-handed. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. got to show off. Just uh, try yeah. to, oh, You want to be a meme. Yeah, yeah. Accomplished. Um, I I, I talk generalities. I do want to talk specifics, and at the risk of making this sound like a Rafa ad, I mean, there are brands of clothing (laughs) that get it all right, and they they charge a lot, but you do get your money's worth. And and like Velocio is a good example, and uh, I think Pedal Mafia. They're they're brands that cost a lot, but mm, it's really nice clothes. So so if you can afford it, I do think you are rewarded for spending that little bit extra money. Right. And I say this specifically with regard to Rafa and their uh, Brevet jerseys and their Brevet lightweight jerseys, which are Merino-based, yeah. which I I just wore in cooler conditions thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in a cooler climate now. This is my go-to jersey. And it has been. I've started wearing them in warmer conditions, and they're amazing. And on top of it, the Brevets in particular have all this extra storage, which if you're out for long days, unsupported days, then that's, that's kind of a nice thing to have too. But it does, you know, it just – uh, opened my eyes to the fact that Marina wool, you know, ding, 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 drink, if John, Jonathan's <laughs> buzzword, it, it actually has some validity. Yeah, that stuff is... Uh, That's incredible. It's usable across different temperatures and humidity levels, et cetera, and it breathes surprisingly well. What's this stuff? It doesn't stink that bad. <laughs> What's that? Marina wool. Okay. Let me tell you all about it. Yeah, it's been a long time since you mentioned that one. So mm-hmm. somebody's been waiting for that one on the bingo card. You got it, mm-hmm. and you're probably super excited right now. So... Yeah, Marina Wolf, next to skin. 
that's the best stuff to have for sure. Uh, Sam's question. Do I really need eight weeks of a specialty plan? Looking at the plan, it looks great if you're doing weekly crits for a season and want to keep your peak up as long as possible. And I think that that's misinterpreting the plan, Sam, but we'll get into it more. But if my A event is a single race and I don't really have any races leading up to it, except one that's four weeks prior, eight weeks of specialty seems excessive or another way to say this, it looks like I could do another four week build block, then four weeks of specialty at most to prepare myself for the race. What are your thoughts on this? So Sam, I think that you're understanding the point of base and build and specialty, perhaps you're understanding the objective of it, but maybe not how it's accomplished. Chad, um, can you go into the basics of like what the specialty is or specialty phase of training is what the goal it tries to accomplish? Then Nate, I want to talk about like plan builder and how it could take care of this problem for Sam, but then also specifically with his question about why it might not be a good idea to try to push build as close as you can to your event and just keep doing more beforehand. <laughs> go ahead, Chad. <clears throat> Really simply, physiologically, the the forms of, I guess we could call it support fitness, you know, the base forms of fitness need to be in place in order for you to, to start to specialize, in order for you to start to really refine or get highly specific with the types of uh, fitness and efforts and all the things that you'll face in your particular discipline. So when we move into specialty, the assumption that is that all these support forms of fitness are in place. They're, they're, they're accomplished. We've built a big aerobic capacity. We've built good muscle endurance. We've um, honed your form. We've worked on strengthening on the bike, off the bike, et cetera. All these things are here. So now that we, we can get super specific with what you need to be able to do. And some of those things are probably largely in place. In order to race well, if you have a high level of muscle endurance, you can probably race pretty well. But can you be in the decisive moves? Can you, when the the pace ramps up in the closing laps of a criterium, can you hang in there and can you still punch after that happens? And and those are the things that that you'll be exposed to. And yes, physiologically, we're still very concerned with what you can do. Can you, in the case of uh, anaerobic uh, capacity, can you punch well, well, well above your threshold and, you know, hold it for a certain number of seconds and then maybe even repeat it, that, that we could trace that back to the physiology and the adaptations that we've been pursuing through the, the base and the build and now in the specialty. But really when it gets to specialty, it's just exposure. It's like mentally, I need to see that I can do these things and I need to face these particular challenges, this order of challenges, this, you know, the sequence of events that I'm going to see time and time again. I need to see them in the workouts before I try to emulate them on the road. And, and all the physiology is taking place. All the physiology is either in place or we're going to, you know, kind of, uh, dust it with a, you know, the little bit of powdered sugar on, on the, on the cake, just to get things exactly as they should be. Some of these things take time. So in the case of, you know, your, your event is maybe four weeks away and you think I only need four weeks of specialty or it's eight weeks away and I want to extend my build and then just do four weeks of specialty. That sounds all good and fine. But when it comes to cultivating certain types of fitness and anaerobic capacity springs to mind, you may or may not be to rally, be able to rally those troops in that duration. If you have, if you're, if you're prone to, you know, you have the right fiber composition, maybe you've worked on it in your base and build, maybe that comes around quickly. Maybe you can muster those resources in three weeks, but some people respond slowly to this and they need four, five, six, seven weeks and a taper in order to not only build that form of fitness, but also you know, refresh themselves to a point where they can exploit that new fitness. 
And even if you're a person that does respond quickly, it's not like you'll be served poorly by having extra weeks of specialty training after all that you've done leading up to it, right, Chad? Well, I mean, if you're already strong anaerobically, then a couple extra weeks of anaerobic training could make you even stronger anaerobically. So this could be the difference between I used to be able to cover those moves, but now I can cover those moves and contribute to the, you know, growing the gap and still have enough energy to throw out a couple punches at the end, whether it's a, you know, a break or just hanging in for the sprint. So we're just refortifying high level fitness. So we can, we can build it over a short period of time to a degree, but if you continue on longer, you might be able to build it to a higher degree, which makes you just a more capable rider with more arrows in the quiver. Mm-hmm. Nate. Yeah. It, uh, principle of specificity. Uh, for race performance, you can get the most gains in specialty and like, but you that's can't do them forever. It. We don't do it for a whole season because they plateau and that's why they're at the end. If you just try to do anaerobic, I don't know, see what type of racer you are too, but, uh, it might change if you're doing a 200 mile race or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the kind of things that we put in that specialty phase are the things that you should see in race day. And then they progressively get more and more so that on race day, you can punch more, you can do a longer climb, or you can do more watts for that climb. You can do uh, more repeats on it. Uh, if it's anaerobic or VO2 max, all, all the things that are specific to that type of racing. And on some of those too, it's longer VO2 max efforts versus short, short VO2 max efforts. If it's, let's say cyclocross, where it's you're going up and then floating. These are very specific to the type of racing you're doing. And Again, you need that base fitness and you can't do it year round because this other stuff kind of builds that platform and builds on top of each other on itself. Where if you just did this really high intensity stuff year round, you would, you would fizzle and you just stay flat. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, you should be doing the, all, the whole eight weeks. It's going to be amazing. Chad? It, it's refinement. So, so we've, we've made you good at all the things you need to be good at. Now we're going to make you great at the things that can help you perform really well and the things that matter the most to you. Imagine you're making like, we're making you a sword and we've bent that metal like 50,000 times, right? Or like the, whatever the, the Japanese sword make, make, uh, makers do that's through the base and build. And we just keep doing that. And now you're like, do I really need Fold, to like holding the steel? We fold the steel so many times that this is going to be the hardest steel available so that when we do put the edge on it, it's going to be such a sharp edge. Mm. And you're saying, but do I really need to sharpen the edge? I think I'm just going to blunt whack my way through everything. And that works, right? You could probably still kill someone with that. But if, man, mm-hmm. if that thing's sharp and it's uh, strong, <laughs> someone else comes a sword really, that isn't really as... really uh, saw that one through to the end. <laughs> now <laughs> just got I'm still going, guys. Uh, if that other sword isn't, hasn't been folded as many times, even if it's sharp, you're just going to... You four hits and the other sword's going to break. I love this analogy because you've had so much, you have such a, yeah. uh, stronger, uh, you fold it in your, your core is strong, right? So you, mm-hmm. that's the way to think of it. This is sharpening. <laughs> this is the icing on the cake. Hey, I just made this huge cake, but do I really need to put any frosting on it? I think it's good. It probably is good without it, but man, some frosting is great. But all the frosting, no. <laughs> like, hey, I got this more potatoes. <laughs> I got, analogies will keep coming. But and a little gravy sounds good on it, right? A little bit of butter. But I just wanted to eat a stick of butter or a bowl of gravy. No, that does, that's no good. No way. So this, these are the, it's the cake and the frosting. The cake and the gravy. <laughs> <laughs> Mixed metaphors. Cut with a, Ivy, with what a Japanese blade. <laughs> <laughs> Ivy, uh, what do you have uh, to, to say on this one to Sam? There's nothing I could contribute that would be more eloquently stated than 
<laughs> no more cake. <laughs> Don't finish your cake and bake more cake and put another piece of cake on it. Put some frosting on it. <laughs> but also, though, do you guys ever get in the trap where you're like, I just have to build this cake year round? You're like, I don't. Yes, totally. It's, the cake's mm-hmm. not big I enough. Keep building. So I should not. Like, I feel guilty and sharpening right now, even if it'll make Matt Rates' performance better. I, I fall in this trap a Ooh. lot of times. I just want to keep build, build, build. Another metaphor, Nate, the clay pot metaphor. So um, there's, Nate, can you tell the clay pot thing? Yeah, but how does it relate to this? You're going to see just the very thing you just said. Tell the the clay pot thing. Okay, class was split into two different groups. And one group was judged on, hey, can we make one perfect pot over this, this, uh, this semester? The other group was judged of how many pots can you make in the semester? And your grade will be equal on both. Then at the end, what the teachers did is looked and said, hey, who had, who made the better pot? And it wasn't the person, the team that did one perfect pot. It was the team that did as many pots as possible because they iterated so much and they did it so many times that at the end, they were just really, really good at making pots. And that repetition without trying to go for perfection right away, just trying again and again and again. And that's what we talk a lot about at Trainer Road is let's just get something out there and try it and do three thousand and fifty two podcasts it gets better and better and better than if we tried to just do one perfect podcast you know yeah. just once totally yeah and the where i want to tie this back in is into that desire to just be like no i'm just going to keep building keep building i'm never going to fully finish this mm. cake i want to keep going until it's perfect and then eventually it'll be perfect you get a lot by going through the process of doing base build specialty and then resetting and doing base build specialty That specialty phase, like Chad was saying, allows you to fine tune your fitness, not incur perhaps as much stress. It's a different type of stress, but you adapt to that pretty quickly and you're not going to be putting in as much hard work that's really going to be stressing your system. And then you can reset after that. You can have a taper coming into an event. You can have recovery after the event, take a week or two off and then go back in. And what happens when you go through that process is it allows you to start base from a more elevated position. That elevated position or your, your, your elevation is, is decided by two main factors. Number one, if you're coming into it really beat down because you haven't been specializing and instead you've just been building and building and building, you'll come into that so tired that you won't be able to absorb a whole lot of the adaptations that you're getting. And on the other side, if you never actually built up to a high point, then of course your elevation will also be lower or your starting elevation for that next training phase. So it's really important to do this base build specialty and to go through it. And the specialty phase is, uh, for some people at first, it might feel difficult because it's a different type of training, but move through it. You're going to get better at it and it's going to prepare you for your events. It's just fantastic. Now with plan builder, in this case, Sam, if you use plan builder, it's going to, it might even truncate your specialty phase, depending on your experience level, uh, depending on the different circumstances that you enter into plan builder, it might truncate it, make it a bit shorter for you. It might extend things in other spots and make it a bit longer. It might reset you partway through your build. We've built in, because really all we're explaining here, it's the basics of periodization and how it allows your body to be able to grow. And we've built that into Plan Builder. So really, Sam, you can trust Plan Builder to give you the right dose of the right type of training phase at the right time. And it's going to make you faster. It's a it's it's a complicated question to manage it yourself. And that's why we built the system for it. Nate. Another analogy. I got you now. I know what you're saying. Imagine there's two racers over four years. One racer races 10 or 10 times a year. The other racer just races once because they are always like, you know, I'm not ready to race. I'm not fit enough yet. 
Like I got to get to this. I'm afraid what other people are going to think about me. Same training volume, right? And maybe the race gets replaced with the training. Who's going to be the better racer four years from now? The person who raced 40 times or the person who raced just once because they focused on just getting that perfect execution. Uh, They're like, I can't, I'm not fast enough. I don't, I I had to have this watt kg before I race. I want to drop the field, right? It's very easy to see that the person who races, there is an extent to that where you say, if you race 50 times per year, that's probably too much, Ivy. There's <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> First thing, oh, whoops. <laughs> uh, but there is, you should be doing the things to increase the skill, right? You have to do it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think one yeah. of the aspects of periodization that gets glossed over a little too easily or maybe not even recognized by some people is that every sequence of periodization, base, build, specialty, base, build, specialty, brings you to a higher point each time. So, so each time you start with a slightly elevated playing field so that you're never really the same athlete. And this is a testament or, or we see evidence of this in the fact that some of the best endurance performances in the world are still happening in athletes who are late 30s, early 40s, later 40s, sometimes early 50s, because they're doing it right. They're, they're period, and it might be strictly periodization, but it is. I mean, they're, they're, they're building something and then backing off and then allowing it to, to solidify and then building something on top of it and backing off and then just doing it all right, coming into the season ready to start it again at a slightly higher level. And year after year after year, that compounds. It's that whole mm-hmm. old man strength that I've heard bandied about quite a bit <laughs> with, you know, specific to me, specific to, to, to Bubba and all these people I used to race with. It's like how, I mean, he's, he's, he's heavy, heavier than he's ever been. In fact, in some cases, downright doughy and he hands me my <laughs> butt. How, how is this happening? How does he have the fitness to do this? And yes, there's racing acumen and strategy and tactics and all those things. Absolutely. But that fitness level just never falls that far because every year they're building on a slightly higher foundation than they were the year prior. Uh, two, though, yeah. how many national champions does championships does Bubba have? Many. Many. On the track, on the road. Yeah. Like over six? Yeah. Probably. That's another thing, though. He's been race. He races. He's been. How long has he raced for? And how many races do you think he's done? Jeez, it has to be. Wow, probably forty, many hundred, forty years of racing. Oh, so and and, oh yeah, probably in the thousands. Thousands, seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's honestly too, uh, Ivy. I'm gonna make an example of you too, but. You put yourself into racing, whether it's one week, it's going to be track lacrosse. The next week it's cross country Olympic. The next week it's a road race. Like you like do like Mm. all over the place, but you've raced so much and you've built years upon years, upon years, upon years that you have this sort of like flexibility. And I know we're kind of drifting off course. I'm really just saying like, I think Ivy's cool. So uh, Ivy like shows up (laughs) to races and she has like the flexibility to execute at an event where she may not be fully specialized for that. She may have a lot of specialty, whatever it is, but she's able to do it. So put emphasis on this compounding effort time after time, like Chad's saying, and it does pay off with aerobic uh, performance gains that, that last. And that versatility is a whole other discussion. And I don't want to take us too far mm-hmm. off topic, so I won't delve into it, but it, there's so many benefits to it. So many crossover benefits from discipline to discipline so much in, in, in terms of the motivation that it fosters, the, it, it makes you just a more complete athlete. And if I've pushed anything over the years, I hope it's that I, I like even dedicated cyclists to be pretty complete athletes. I don't want them to be specifically a cyclist and weak in all the areas that cyclists are typically, typically weak in. So 
I love the idea of mixing it up. Mm -hmm. I want to go into Brett's question and looking at the time that we have, we're going to cover this one pretty quickly. I was going to skip it, but I think it's important to cover. So Brett says, uh, hi all, what's the best technique for hitting my workout numbers outside? I seem to be unable to figure this out and my numbers outside are always all over the place. You're not alone, Brett. It's tricky to do. Uh, it says, hence a ride with proposed TSS of 50 ends up being a TSS of 100. Oof. I have a fear of overtraining here, but this time of year in Massachusetts, you want to get outside as often as possible. I'm no great physical specimen, but my riding has improved astronomically in the past four months, and I want to stay on that trajectory. Love the podcast and love Trainer Road. Thanks from Brett. And I just want to take this. The reason that I wanted to say this is if doing your workouts outside compromises the integrity of your workouts, don't expect the same outcomes like you can't and do them inside. If you can't do them outside, do them inside. Like doing your training is the important thing. And if taking your workouts outside is, is compromising your ability to be able to follow targets, or in this case, doubling TSS that you have scheduled, that's a great way to get to a spot where you won't be able to continue your training and you'll just plateau. It's, it's a really tricky thing. And I think it's hard because like you say, Brett, you want to ride outside uh, because Massachusetts, I'm sure you dealt with a brutal winter, right? And it's nice outside and you have all those things. But if bringing your training outside, like you shouldn't sacrifice the training, keep that sacred, make that consistent, and then still give yourself the chance to be able to experience outside like you want. Yeah, Ivy, go ahead. John, we should talk about how you can use Plan Builder to accommodate something like this, right? Check. Go ahead, Ivy. Yeah. Because yeah. outside, 50 extra TSS, if... Brett's just trying to like enjoy outside and add some more endurance. 50 TSS can be hours and hours. That's a lot of mm -hmm. extra time outside. So within Plan Builder, if you want to spend a lot of time outside doing endurance rides because you just want to ride outside and you feel like you're compromising those really key workouts, reduce your volume, move the key workouts during the week, and then on the weekends when you want to do really, really big endurance rides, you can still do that and you've already done the important work during the week. Um, nailed it. Okay, Brett, you're going to ride outside no matter what. Don't, please don't suspend your train road subscription. But what you do is, <laughs> yes. what I hear now is you're saying, imagine if I said this, how do I ride outside? Every time I try to ride 50 miles, I end up riding 100 miles. And Alia would be like, what, what, just like plan something and you're not going to ride 100 miles. How do you accidentally <laughs> ride 100 miles? What you can do is when you do an outside ride that's planned, you can click and say, I'm going to ride this outside. And you can put in the, the time or the duration and you put in the effort level you want to ride and we will estimate your TSS. It's actually pretty close, but we can say, um, you can say I'm going to ride three hours at an easy pace or at a hard pace and it'll be relative to what you can do for that time. And you can get a, an estimate on that. So which then you can do a course that I think is going to take me this much time that then you can make sure that you don't go too hard. Another point though, Chad said this earlier, he's like, I have to go outside on the easy stuff. I'm the opposite. If I go outside on the easy stuff, there's no way I'm easy enough. Like I, mm. and it is, it's actually my favorite to be able to get it's on the trainer. One. I don't turn on the fan. I get my favorite TV show on. I'm like, this isn't going to hurt. It's going to feel better afterwards. And I just watch TV mindlessly for an hour, um, which, you know, we don't get to do a lot in our lives. Usually that is my favorite day. And when I'm outside mindlessly spinning, like the time goes so slow. I like to, 
if I'm yeah. running outside, I like it's to be different with, for everybody. Yeah, be with other people. It does, but it's different, that, and it's yeah. within the same person too. Because everything Nate just described is exactly what I looked forward to when it came to recovery. I'm just going to park it on the trainer, watch a show, maybe read a Kindle online sort of thing, listen to music, whatever. Classical make music, back with candles. <laughs> Yeah, all that. I'm going to make it thoroughly enjoyable. It's, it's my day to, to not work. That that used to translate. That used to work for me. It, it doesn't anymore. And it's probably just a product of the fact that I really like the outdoor environment up here. So it's shifted. You'll get tired of it. It's it's, a- <laughs> it's, it's true, though. Trees I, no, uh, Trees I made I made Reno work for 20-some years. And, man, yeah. there's just not yeah, you, a lot on. You never here. trained inside in Reno. Like. <laughs> you did a, you did never, a lot, yeah. dude. Uh, <laughs> never at all. <laughs> maybe the most person in all of Reno. But the, I, I, I'm oh, saying, sure. depending on your ro- roads, it happens at a different point. But I think if you live in the same place forever, it, you start to go, mm, uh, I wish I had some different roads. Yeah. And then when you travel, you're mm-hmm. like, you get reinvigorated because you're like, this is amazing and it's new. And some people just have that one out and back and it can be tough. But we're lucky we have a whole bunch of different things we can do. And Reno is a very yeah. good place for uh, gravel road and mountain. Uh, yep. Yeah. So let's say that you're in this position of, um, of Brett, but you have, you aren't compromising the quality of your workouts. You're able to hit them or you, you, you aren't in a position where they're ballooning and getting too high and you can do outside workouts. You have great terrain to be able to do it. Everything else tips on hitting your numbers. We've talked about this before. If you go to our blog, we have, and our help center, we have great resources on how to set up your head unit. I know Alex wild does one second smoothing. I don't know how he does that. That would melt my brain, especially riding outside. Uh, I do 10 seconds smoothing for my, and you could do even more if you need, but 10 seconds smoothing when you're riding outside is super helpful. It, it, if you constantly are chasing the power target, you'll just be a ball bouncing up and down the whole time. But if instead you just try to shoot for that middle ground, and also you'll notice within the workouts, we give you a range to be able to stay within. Just try to stay smooth. Chad's always mentioned this. Data informs perception. And when you're doing your workouts outside in particular, and the way that you can practice this inside, if you're going out or if you want to take your workouts outside is ride in resistance mode and see what that feels like for a bit, instead of riding in erg mode. And you'll notice you lock into what 200 Watts or whatever the target is for that interval. You'll lock into what that feels like, and you'll get good at maintaining that. And that's what you'll be doing outside too. You'll lock into what it feels like, and you'll get really good at maintaining it. So give yourself like an adaptation period to go over it. But if you find that it's compromising the quality of your workouts and you're not able to stay on to your training plan, then don't do that. Do what Ivy said, maybe reduce your volume, give yourself the outside time that you still want to have, but then make sure that you keep that training sacred. The training is what will keep you on track and keep you faster, especially through the summer. Like Chad and Nate over the years, man, if we had a dollar for everybody that ended up having great fitness and then dropping that fitness once they, uh, once they got into the summertime or warmer months and they just quit following structure. Super I mean, common boy. I know exactly yeah. the amount of money because I can look at people who spend only during the summer and I can look at their FTP yeah. and I can cross those and say, Oh yeah, those are those people. But there is a, the ability tight, of yeah. there, um, the book Endure by what Alex Hutchinson, I believe yes. is the name. He says it really well is, um, he talks about if I don't, you know, go have this beer with my mates, I am then going to go over the edge and, really have issue like fall off the wagon and there's a bit of this where some unstructured outside just enjoyment with no purpose serves a purpose right 
that it reinvigorates yes. you. And that's perfectly awesome and fine. It's what John's talking about is when you go from structure to hundred percent, no purpose, you can't expect, which is fine. You can do that if you want to, but don't expect those fitness gains that you work so hard for to stay. And it can feel, yep. this is the hard part too. And, and I almost feel like people have to go through this once. Hopefully they don't. You can just <laughs> listen and trust us, put you right outside in that group, right? And it feels hard and it feels like a workout, like as much as an interval workout. So you think I am getting the same benefit or increase, or I'm going to have the same race performance um, because of that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can think of the drop right here versus like, you know, uh, VO2 max repeats and stuff. Drop right's hard, but man, you do those VO2 max repeats four weeks and then you show up to the drop ride and you're a whole nother rider compared to that. If you did that drop ride every single week and it feels just as hard, like you're going to die. Yeah. John, can I tease something on this, Nate? <clears throat> Maybe unplug my cord if you want, but we've been working wait, wait, on, what? <laughs> on what? No, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not bad. It's not a release thing. But we, you've mentioned that we've been working on outside workouts and being able to quantify those so they affect your levels, right? We've mentioned that. Okay, but we typically have like a... Yeah. yeah don't say yeah. anything about the secret sauce in that or anything about how we're going to do No it. secret sauce. No secret sauce. But to nail Nate's point home, I have been surprised oh, gotcha. when you can actually get something that quantifies those outside just mm-hmm. races or group rides or even like days if you just go and chase some Strava KOMs how little training impact they actually have mm-hmm. on your and on your fitness. And it's crazy because you look back and you're like, well, like that, you know, I don't know if you did, let's just say you did 30 thirties or you did like, you know, two by something VO two, whatever that simple VO two workout that seemed kind of easy. That actually had more training effect than that group ride where I felt like I was getting tossed out the back. And it's this, another great example of us decoupling effort from actual product productive training right and productive impact just because you feel like something's hard doesn't mean that it's productive yeah and that's something that it's been scope we've been privy to this information because we can see it working and as we're tweaking it and working on it and i've been looking at this and looking at all the different rides i do and it's really interesting and the cool part is i look at the outside workouts that i do we're blessed with like amazing roads here and i can hold my targets with just as much precision as inside And when I look at that, it's spot on to what I should have done inside. And then I go and do like a crit and I'm like, wow, that really didn't make me that much faster in terms of training. Gave me soft skills. It's important, but it doesn't replace training. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. I say that most of the athletes in a, in the drop rides, unless you're with the, the hitters up front, the people who can control the pace and are actually having fun because their fitness allows them to do it, whatever it is, it's, it's almost equivalent to training in too much heat or too high altitude and that what you can do is blunt it. So, so, so you, Mm. you just hanging in there long enough to achieve a fatigue state. And then you're just hanging in there for the rest of that ride in a fatigue state means you're never really doling out the the stimulus that's necessary to tell your body to get stronger. You're just operating in a fatigue state for a long period of time and it doesn't carry impact. So from a physiological perspective, you're not doing the things necessary to tell your body to do better. Yeah. You don't have that rest and then the hit hard, right. And the yeah. rest, because yeah. you're just like, you can never really rev it up. You're always operating in just a heavily fatigued state trying to hang on for dear life. John, thank you. That was a great, great point. I'm going to, so what, what I'm describing with RPE, we can now measure and quantify and we have this internal that we can see. And I'll, I'll say it a, a different way. You can do a level seven threshold ride for 90 minutes inside. Be like, man, that was a very hard ride. You can go outside and ride for 90 minutes in a group ride. And be like, wow, that's a very hard ride, but only get like four threshold points, right? Mm-hmm. So for the same kind of effort, 
you're, it's actually like, oh, this is a Chiva workout. And if you were to do a similar one inside with intervals, you'd be like, oh, that's not so hard. But it's a lot of that stuff that Chad said. So it's not just the how hard it is. And the TSS might be the same, right? You still might get tired from it and have to rest and recover. But this training stimulus of what will make you faster and what's going to push you forward to that next 7.5, 8, 8.5 FTP increase is different. And you can still accomplish it outside, of course. But it just takes some... Uh, some planning, some purpose, some Absolutely. structure. Yeah. Ivy, you're killing it in the live chat today, by the way. Thank you. I just checked on that. It's amazing. Um, I don't know if uh, I should if be you're... telling everyone to DM me with their problems, but I did. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. Could we just forward them support too, if it, you get overwhelmed? So it's great. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, oh, cool. So let's get into Dom's question. We might go a little long today, everybody. Sorry. Uh, or you're welcome. One of the two, whichever side of the fence you sit on. Uh, Dom says, Hey, Trainer Road team, I started using Trainer Road in January and realized that Garmin and Sufferfest have really underestimated my FTP. I'm on a training plan for Mountain Bike Marathon and have moved from an FTP of 240 to 289 with Trainer Road since January, and I'm hoping to break the 300 mark on my next AI FTP detection test. Way to go. Boom. Nice job. Exciting stuff. Like it calls it a test. Well, yeah. It's not. It's, it's true. just a button. I mean, <laughs> but but it is. It's actually like way more. Oh, we've talked about this a bunch. Uh, um, sorry, this is going to be a side. We're going long today, but this is thinking that you are perfectly represented by one effort on one day versus something that looks at your training on a much more broad perspective and is including much more into it. It's insane to think that that, that we've all had it. Like you've had that one, like it wasn't a presentation in class in college or something like that. And you were just nervous or you really sucked that day. And you don't want to be judged by that, right? Like the, that one bad performance. And that's the cool thing about AI FTP detection is it's much more comprehensive than just one single effort at one single time. And, it's yeah. pretty cool. And more than that, some of the other ones, what they do is they, you have to get a capacitive effort. So they look at like your best 20 minute power and it's very hard for us just to pace 20 minutes, much less have a section of road that has the right area to pace. <laughs> um, and then elevation impacts that too. Uh, there's so many things. Like John said, it, we don't even need a capacitive effort to do this, which is super cool. This is because we can, and we have a, what is it, 120, 140 million workouts or something in our system. So we, we yeah, can- 150. 150, yeah. 150 million rides. I mean, we had, I don't think we've trained it again on all 150, but of, we've trained it on a whole bunch of data. We get data from people when they sign up, we get their complete history. Uh, when you suspend your account, you know, you're still putting in data. So when you come back, it's all there. So we get a, it's not just trainer own inside data, but we get lots and lots of data. And what with machine learning, what you do is you, you put what they're called features in to identify what, uh, certain things that we think might impact FTP and performance and stuff like that. And then you run it through your data and you see the correlation of what did people do? Then how did they perform? And we can look at that over many years with all sorts of sorts of people over millions and millions and tens of millions and maybe a hundred million rides in order to find that relationship between if you do this, this is how fast you are. So this system, no human can figure this out in their head. And, uh, what that does, and it comes out with this AFTP, right? This says, this is what you are based on all this sort of data. And the cool thing is the engineers keep having new versions and it's very easy for us to decide to tell if it's better because when you do is you take a, a set of data and we have a known outcome but we run it through the system like it doesn't know the outcome. So it goes through a bunch of data and says, this is what we think it is, and you can compare to that outcome. And as long as that data set is uh, representative and not too small and stuff, you can 
what engineers can do is they can keep creating new features and stuff and new ways to measure the data to get that better and better and better over time. Um, to an extent where, you know, it'll be so good one time where there's no, there's really no edge cases that we have to worry about, or the edge cases are one in 10,000 and, uh, we can do something else. So there's a diminishing returns, but it's been updated a few times already. And I know they're working on some other cool stuff. Um, really cool stuff that I will not mention. I won't mention it. Uh, uh, I was like, thank you. Uh, it's, yeah. So that's, that's how it works. And that's why it doesn't need those capacitive efforts because it can say, look at this history. And for all the other people that have similar histories like this, that have done the things that you do, this is how they perform. And it's been proven with the data where other people might say, Hey, in the last six weeks, your max power was 300 Watts. Therefore, or of 20 minutes, therefore your FTP is 310. And that's as far as it goes. And that's, I mean, many times over six weeks, I do not do a, there might be actually maybe two or three times a year. I do a max 20 minute effort. Even that man, like in a race, it's pretty rare. It's, yeah. Cause you're it's really rare in a race. You're already fatigued, right? It, it's you, that's mm-hmm. not a max effort. So it's, it's a really hard way to get measured that way and then to pace it correctly. And to be, as John said, that best day. So you were like, what is my taper coming into it? Uh, if I need a taper or not, and I could be fatigued. There are all these sorts of things, and there's a mental aspect of it. Um, it's we can hard. do a so, whole deep dive on all of those elements of isolated FTP testing protocol versus AI FTP detection. I, I yeah. kind of am. Let's go. So, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I cover this? Yeah, you mentioned a big one of testing anxiety. <clears throat> I've like developed that with tests. And were live tests. it was really frustrating. Yeah, it broke me. <laughs> it did <laughs> doing it live in front of, you know, the internet. Um, but it's, it, it broke me and I got to the point where it didn't matter the testing protocol. I just couldn't get what I felt like was an accurate. Cause what's the point of FTP? It's to give you good training. It's a training benchmark that gives you well calibrated training. That's the whole point. <clears throat> and I was getting numbers that were not giving me productive training. And I just ended up manually updating thereafter and I developed this really bad relationship with testing and oh, so much anxiety with it. And I just love the fact that I don't have to worry about that. I also don't have to worry and think that like, all right, I got to go outside and not call it a test, but do a capacitive effort and really like, you know, taper into it and give myself the best opportunity to do this 20 minute, really hard effort. So then that will feed the algorithm what it needs. And it doesn't need any of that. And it's super, super cool. It, one of the things that I've found too, I mean, that paired with adaptive training. It just, boom, like my training's accurate. This is like an, I, I know that we're talking about how awesome the system is that we built, but we're honestly, excited. and so uh, I we apologize, built it for ourselves. we never run ads on this podcast. Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. <laughs> and we never run ads on this podcast. We've never done that. We turn them down. I don't know if Nate gets the emails too, but I probably get like five emails we, literally We per could make day. hundreds and thousands of dollars easy on this podcast with amounts yes. of listens, <laughs> maybe even more, maybe yeah. even the million, like it's, there's a lot of people yes. that listen to this, uh, but we don't do it. Yes. Yeah, but this is this yeah. is dope. So I stuff. hope you don't mind. Uh, Makes you faster too. The yeah. oh, I was going to say uh, before we move on, I want to say something else about this. Uh, what were you just saying, though? I, I was just talking about not having to do a capacity. Oh, I know. I was and, say. and avoiding testing anxiety. Yeah. So two with this this model, it's not built on just you. And you might say, "Hey, I wish this was built just on me." But because of what John just said, because we build on a whole population of people, there are. A, I've met them, people who I've, I've even done live ramp tests with some people and they just can't perform 
to where they should. And then when they actually do um, the workout, they're like way stronger, right? It's like too easy. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. It could be mental, stuff like that. But what Mm -hmm. we've seen in the forum is people who do under test, they could actually put it the right spot, right? And then there's all those, those people, and I might be one of them too, especially if it's live with Pete. I go deeper <laughs> than any other workout um, than I, I could. And, you know, I, my fitness is there, but my mental day-to-day isn't that. And I, I only get that extra benefit I, really live with Pete. It's cause like a race. Uh, but that ability, those people get pushed down a little bit to get more inside of that bell curve of where you should be. And then we have adaptive training after that that's going to tweak your levels after each workout and all in seven different energy systems. Um, and this grinds my gear a, a little bit, but if anyone says we are FTP-based, they do not understand our system because mm-hmm. with, with, uh, progression levels, I, I, we might rebrand our FTP to like training FTP or TFTP because it's, and then tell you what your 60 minute power would be because there's a lot of confusion in that. Let me know if you like that idea because it's really the progression levels with that number where everything then is variable mm-hmm. and on its own. And it's in a range. Of course, it has to be in some kind of range, but the range is very big. And you could be an excellent anaerobic person and horrible at sweet spot like Pete Morris and still live inside that system. Um, it, it like really enca- encapsulates the people who live on the outside of the bell curve to be able to train effectively inside of that. So if anyone says mm-hmm. train road is just FTP based, I guess we were um, years ago, but we're yeah, not anymore, not anymore. Um, with progression levels. So it's a, they either miss, we, we do get misrepresented, um, pretty often mm-hmm. by people. And usually they are people who have vested interest to like, they have a competing product. Um, a service yeah. is either, um, anyone who you pay for training is a competitor to us, right? We charge 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. So just take that into account. Uh, or maybe they just don't know about the latest stuff. So, uh, yeah. just think about that and we're not always right of course and we're going to be better and i did this two years ago but hopefully in two years we're going to look at what we have now and think this system we are so much better i can't believe the way we trained two years ago because two years from now it's going to be that much better and every like every 12 months we're going to keep doing that and look back and say wow that that was the past now we're in the future and that's the nature of, of evolution. And this is why I've always had a gripe with capacitive efforts. And I, to the point where I, I don't even like to hear that term. Even that term starts to kind of raise my hackles a bit and puts me in a, a not good <laughs> head state. I, I think they should be strictly limited to to race scenarios and, and not not exactly race scenarios either, but they have to have some level of spontaneity. They have to just be pushed upon you in a scenario that inspires your greatest level of motivation. And I don't know too many people who can inspire that level of self-motivation come FTP test day, come, come any capacitive effort day where, you know, I need you to do an all out one minute test. Well, let's just hope all the stars align so that today I can get a one minute test that is truly representative of what I can do during my best minute. It, so many things have to have to work out. So if you're informing all of your training levels on one little data point and hoping that that one data point is exactly what it, it should you want it to be, you need it to be, it's it's super iffy, and 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 that's why. I mean, again, this is this is why we evolve. We know yeah. this, so we this is the amount of information we have. We have to make that work, and that's what we do. But we learn more. We evolve. We now take those new learnings, all that new information, that new data new technology and we steer it in a direction that says, okay, that was a good way then, but here's a better way now. Yeah. That's a good point is that does work. And some people it it works pretty well. And if you're in the bell curve, that could work for you. 
Um, and this is why we brought, we wrote in the, the percentage change in the workout system early on. And we've griped on this for how many years have we done this podcast, John, for this is 364. I think we did in 2015, 2014. Yeah. But the idea of like, and it's even the workout text, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, especially on those VO2 time. max workouts and stuff to be able to change the percentage based on how you're feeling inside of that because of this relationship to try to, it's almost like adaptive training, but like by yourself, mm-hmm. there are issues with that though, because if you inside of a workout, um, you don't want the person to modulate it. It's better than if you're going to die, not doing it, but it's, it, it's I've mentioned this before. It's like on that if you're on a climb in a group climb and you slow down, everyone else slows down. Well, guess what? You're going to slow down because everyone's going to slow down. So you don't want to write software where, hey, if you do bad at an interval, let's make all of them less because there's a mental incentive that you know that you have this mm-hmm. bailout. Where uh, mm-hmm. you know if you maybe you skip a skip an interval and then you can do the rest. Or sometimes, I mean, uh, raise your hand. Well, I guess you can just say it because this is a podcast. How many times have you thought you're on interval three of six and you go, there is no chance, no chance I am finishing this inside your head, but I'll try mm-hmm. one more. And then on four, you're like, okay, that was, that was the hardest I've ever gone. No chance. And then on, you get to five and you're like, I can do this last one. Uh, I mean, after you've finished five and you go through this yeah, yeah. incredible battle in your head happens in racing too, is the exact same psychology. Then afterwards, man, that dopamine hit at the end of that workout I'm like on cloud nine, you're, you're light, yeah. you're happy. Uh, you did your work. Like the rest of the next day feels really good. Uh, have y'all experienced that? Literally every time that I train. Yeah. I was just going to say that. I have to talk myself through every, <laughs> every workout in exactly yeah. that matter. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. If I had, if I had something that was automatically bailing me out, Oh, that would probably lead to me just not doing what I should. Right. <laughs> I can't oh, go ahead. Yeah. Ivy, then I'm going to tell you about new features. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring up a really important point that we talk about a lot internally that I think we should address. Um, Charlie in the live Ooh. chat asked, what about athletes that overtest or overtesting? Mm-hmm. And I think we need to talk about how detrimental it is to your training to be constantly updating your FTP or constantly wanting to yeah. update Ooh. your FTP so or test. There's two different, yeah, perfect. Great point, It's a segue into this feature that I'm going to talk about. But there's two parts in this. So if you do that thing where you <laughs> think you, air quotes, overtest, um, AFTP again, looks at the bell curve, but as soon as, since we've had adaptive training, it's not really an issue anymore because we have so much suspension inside of adaptive training that if you, you do air quotes over test and your first workout is a struggle, um, you can't finish it, or you just mark it as a really hard RPE. We're going to downgrade you and put you and find where that is. And we're going to learn that relationship to make it so you don't have that, uh, that issue in the future. Um, so that's not such a, as big a deal. But on the same time with AFTP, you shouldn't have to go through that process, right? It's just going to be a lot closer. There'd still be some kind of, there's always going to be some kind of uh, adjustment because of all the other variables outside in your life. But the thing that Amber's team is working on, uh, one, to get AFTP detection out, easier to use, uh, faster, working on that. Second milestone, which we are working on, is to remove ramp tests from tests completely Unless you just signed up from plans, remove ramp tests from plans, plans you mean. and untrained now. And what we're going to do is we're going to monitor you what your FTP is on the back end. And then once post ride, if you do have a new FTP, we will tell you and we want to have it so that you uh, you work through that those progression levels. And w- what happens then is 
you might start at a uh, you know lower time and zone and some shorter intervals. And then as you get to the higher numbers, you can increase your time and zone. And it's actually going to be dependent on your fitness level and what plan and uh, what phase you're in, which is really amazing. Because if you're in a 40K TT rider and you're a sustained power build, we want to get you up to those you know, seven, eight, nine, uh, um, uh, levels where if you're a new rider, mm-hmm. you can, you might be able to, your, your FTP is increasing so fast that some of those really hard, short ones are going to really bring you up fast. And this is all going to do it automatically on the back end. And so there's no testing anxiety. You can have that rest week and just be like, amazing. This is a rest week and not have to dread that Tuesday for those who don't like testing. Um, there's a couple caveats to this is in order for this system to first turn on when you first start training road, you're going to ride 10 rides. I believe it's 10. It might be 12. It depends on what the AI team uh, decides. And the other one is we're not going to let you do this uh, more than every, I believe 28 days because looking at it more than every 28 days, especially with progression levels, um, it, it does not make sense to keep updating your FTP because you're going to be stuck at that same time and zone over and over again. And it's not going to be optimal. So you could do it and you will get faster. But you could get more faster if you do it this other way. And that's where we're going to build it automatically. And those for train now athletes, you can just ride and we'll detect your fitness and we'll say, boom, this is the time that you have a new FTP. We're going to show and probably animate how your progression levels change. So you start this new build into this new uh, FTP and really, really make you faster without the anxiety. Um, what we're not going to have at first, which I think we might do in the future. Give me feedback on this. I want something on the career page that shows me how close I am to that, the likelihood of a next FTP. And it probably won't be exactly like you're getting it today, but in a low, medium, high, or very high. So there's kind of variable reward and stuff. And the way this system works is um, it's, it's, I don't want to explain it's it, but going deep on in, stuff. in general, <laughs> I think that's a cool idea so that you can get really excited. Um, and if you take time off, you mm-hmm. can see yourself go back down, right? Like, I take, mm-hmm. uh, I take two weeks off, and instead of it being a high likelihood of a new FTP, it gets down to a medium or no likelihood of a new FTP. This is my dream. Yep. This, is, this is amazing. And then the final step, what the ML team is actually already working on, that we pull in your rides, you start training road, all those other rides outside, and we get the FTP at the very beginning so we don't have to do the ramp test when you first sign up for training road. That is. That's going to help. That's the dream. That's the dream. Yep. Oh, man. So what was the Let's question? Get back to... Skip back. Yeah, what? <laughs> Skip back. We didn't even get to it yet. But let's, I, I like that. Very informative stuff. Uh, for AI FTP detection, if you have not signed and adapted training, if you haven't signed up for Trainer Road, do it. Go over there, sign up, give it a shot, put it to the test to see if it makes you faster for your next race. I'm confident it will. Okay. So Dom says, I love the app and the podcast, and I'm a scientist, of course. He says, I'm so I am, of course, over analyzing my training and nutrition most of the time, but the podcast always brings me back to earth. I'm 46 and I've done a couple races pre COVID and would like to do more endurance races mentioned specifically mountain bike, marathon, gravel, and Gram Fondo moving forward. However, I'm not really sure where I fit in and I'm afraid that I cannot finish some of those longer races or compete in my age group. I often hear you talking on the podcast about Watts, uh, Watts to ki- or Watts per kilogram or power to weight ratio, Watt KG. Those are ways that we uh, refer to that. And I really wonder how good of a metric that is <clears throat> in a previous episode. It was mentioned that four watts per kilogram is a middle of the pack paraphrasing here Mm-mm. or is a middle of the pack rider. No, I thought, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nate. I, it's not, but keep going. It's not at all. Not at We're going to show our bell curve on here too. Oh, cool. uh, so then, then people can see it. Yep. 
Uh, I thought that I was in decent shape, but given that I'm six foot three inches and about 82 kilograms, that puts me at 3.5 Watts per kilogram, which mean, which would mean, and he says with a question mark back of the pack, I'm still planning to drop two to three kilos, which would mean getting close to four point or four Watts per kilogram. I would need an FTP of 316 to be there though. I'm questioning really, or my question really is how the power to weight ratios and how watt kg and weight are linked. I will never be a 75 kilogram rider and I will never have an FTP of 395. So this seems unrealistic at this point as well. Does that mean that I would never be able to compete in my age group? It'd be great if you could provide some more context on how you interpret watt kg's relevance and effect in racing and effect in racing. Thank you. I'll now move, uh, move to give you a five-star rating on Spotify. Thank you, Dom. Mm. Yes. Everybody Spotify go there, rate five stars. The way that you do it, just search for ask a cycling coach podcast, play an episode. And as you're playing through the episode, then it, I think it makes you want, listen to a good portion of the episode. And then you can just scroll back up to the top, hit the rating spot, and then you can leave five stars. Please do that. We need to be number one on there. <clears throat> we don't tolerate anything. Less. Are we close? So uh, I, I'll check that here as we go through this question, but first I'm probably going to break the live stream. So bear with me. How about that? Um, I'm going to try to share Wait, before you our, share this, I'm uh, looking at it. What is the data? Yeah, is this all athletes? Is this at age range, male, female? This is all athletes. This isn't yep. looking at, and this isn't separating for gender. This isn't, this is one that we had quite some time ago, Nate. We, I, I put <clears> it, so it on a fresh poll. Okay. I put it on the forum for this, but I did it by gender because I don't want mm-hmm. women to look at this and think that, um, this is where they should be. And, uh, but the yeah. amount of women just in general in cycling, is probably not pulling down men very much. It might be 0.25 Watts higher, the, the bell curve peak, but you can share it now and I'll, we'll give some context. Cool. So hopefully y'all can see this and hopefully you can still hear us or I broke everything. Hopefully not. Um, but, and the, my co-host won't be able to see it. So you'll have to click the link, uh, to be able to see this. It's live on air. I can see um, great. Fantastic. So, uh, what this bell curve shows is actually Nate, why don't you describe it that, that yeah. way, so th- uh, you can add in the, the nuance with gender and everything else. This is a, uh, bell curve of the Watts per kg of athletes. So a, a histogram means that in each bucket, and I believe this is in what, 0.25 buckets uh yes. of watts per g how many people are in that and it's it's curious a bell uh distribution is like it looks like a bell and there's a whole bunch of people in the middle and then as you go out to the side it gets less and less people and the different i pulled this a while ago and i actually was just thinking of another feature which i will talk about in a little bit that we could do which is really cool <laughs> Chad just like, oh. um <laughs> but it is basically for men overall for men it's like 3.25 is the average person um, and I believe then for women, I want to say it's, uh, 2.5 or two, I think it's 2.5 or 2.75 in general, the differences we see in bell curve distribution is between men and women. It's, or maybe it's, it's either, I have to look, it's in the form. It's either one watt per kg or a half watt per kg. Do you, do y'all remember the difference difference? I think it's one watt per kg. I think it is one watt per kg. Slightly under. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's, if it's 3.25 for women, the average would be 2.25. Uh, in the, the middle of that bell curve. And then after 30, for every five years you go, that bell curve goes down 0.25 watts per kg. And what's really cool about this is that maybe you're 55 years old and you're like, oh, I'm only at four watts per kilo. Well, you are amazing. You are faster than like 95% 
of all people. I mean, if you look at this one, and I did the math on the forum, but at that four watts per kg, uh, like knockoff, there's a huge drop, and not many people are there. Mm-hmm. Most people are lower. And two, with our this is our own data set, so our data is very geared towards people who train structured and are faster than the average person. So this is this is very much so uh, a biased data set of fast people inside of this people who train. So for the really average cyclists, you're ahead. Um, but you think about racers and people who do events, you're pretty good. And the feature, what I was thinking about, it'd be really cool to put on the career page of like an age adjusted one. So if you're 60, what's your walk KG adjusted for a 30 year old? Cause you could say, Hey, I'm, I'm 2.5, but if you're 30, man, you'd be 4.5. Like you are a fast person and you're at the top 10, 5% of our data set for racers adjusted for that. Um, same with women. Like, what would you be if you were a 30 year old man? We can, because, you know, I think that that's the, probably the common person who we compare against. And you might be a woman who's at three Watts per kilo. And if you're 43 Watts per kilo, well, you're actually really fast. You're going to be the top in your group, the top 10, 5% of, of athletes there. Uh, and that also gives you something yeah. as, as you move up, you can see your numbers go up and it's motivation. How do you stand against everybody? And I, we haven't done this before, but I think Peloton proved this is we're worried about a demotivation, but uh, Peloton rides, man, you could be ranked 2000s and you go from like 2000s to 1900 and it feels really good because you went up and you increased inside of that. Uh, so that, that's the idea. Let yeah. me know if y'all think that would be, uh, that would be cool to do, but we we could definitely build that feature. It's not that hard. We do some of what Nate is talking about a little bit, and we have a, a Watt KG calculator actually on the Trainer Road website. Um, I'm going to try to share that right now. Yikes! We'll see how this goes. Um, uh, and yeah, I think I just broke it. Hopefully, everybody's still online. Um, but the the Watt KG calculator that we have, I'm going to see if I can get it going now. Um, the whole point behind this is that what you can do is get a point of reference, but I really want to make sure that it's understood that looking at this, and we're going to get into this soon. This is kind of like a bunch of caveats where we talk about Watt KG. First of all, Dom, Nate just clarified that don't feel like your Watt KG is some sort of like ultimate governor. And it's just like, you're stuck and you'll never have a chance to do that. We're going to go over that in detail. But if you look at this, like you can enter in your weight. So I'll enter in my weight right now. And then uh, not kilograms. There we go. And then according to AI FTP detection, I'm this right now, 309. So 155, 309, 4.39 watts per kilogram. And it shows what an average beginner user is, what an experienced user might be, and then where I'm at. And then down here, uh, you can see where it shows like kind of like some beginners versus experienced cyclists. Then you can get some context. It's pretty cool. We're going to link down to it in the description so you can see that. You can get all the information that you need. But I really want to nail something home that can turn into like kind of like an unhealthy obsession. Nate, if Nate had, had had obsessed over his Watts per kilogram and let it be like, Nope, you'll never be able to race because you're not five Watts per kilogram or Ivy. If you had let that govern you, I'm sure you would have just like, like why even try, right? Like it puts you into that sort of mindset. Um, what thoughts do you have on Watt KG and in terms of race performance, because let's talk about what its bearing or outcome is or what its influence is on the outcome of a race. Certainly you can't escape it. If you're going uphill, like, you know, and all things are the same, Watt KG is Watt KG and that's going to affect it. But races aren't also such a control experiment, correct? Almost never. And specifically when Dom is talking about 
want to do mountain bike races. Um, this is why I don't want to tell Dom not to think about Watts per kg because they're an analytical minded person. They're thinking about it. I'm not going to tell them not to worry about it because it probably isn't effective, but I will say that it doesn't equate directly to race results in most scenarios, unless we're talking about like hill climb TT. So specifically with their mountain bike race, Dom could fixate on trying to drop a few kilos and trying to reach a perfect watt per kg and totally neglect their skills on their technical skills that are totally important for your success in getting a result. And Dom could be a whole watt per kg, per kg stronger than everyone they're racing and not perform well. So the context of how you utilize your power, especially with watts per kg, is more important than the number itself as a standalone metric. Well said. Yeah, so so Dom, uh, the, the old guy is going to get philosophical here and look at this in a broader sense. And and the the relative old guy, I might add. So, so at any... any go, Chad. Love yourself. I like that. <laughs> at any point in time, you're a number of things. And, and context is going to define these things. But at no point in time are you just one thing. And what I hear you saying is... I'm just this number. This number defines everything that I am and that I can be in, in this race context. But but that's just not the way it goes. I mean, Ivy just shed, just spoke to this exactly. Is Numbers are what they are, but that doesn't mean your performance is, is a given in, in any respect. Doesn't mean you're going to be terrible. Doesn't mean you're going to be the one. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's, it's one factor in a host of factors. And she said that n- no race scenario – it's predictable, except for maybe a hill climb time trial. And I, I beg to differ with that even because a hill climb time trial still has more factors than just your strength to weight. That's true. You How could good are you on the poorly. day? Exactly. How good are you on the day? How motivated are you? What's your competition? What's driving you? What's weighing on you? What did you do right and what did you do wrong? I mean, are you staring at a power meter trying to match a number that's unreasonable in the first five minutes? I'm looking at me because I've done that. Are you, are you playing it, playing it by ear based on, you know, how do I feel today? Am I patient? Because I know that this ends with a a climb and I have to have a little extra in the tank by the time I get there. So many things are still factors. That number is an important number. It can be very telling and it's really motivating to watch it grow, but it's not the only thing. Mm -hmm. Nate, um, your thoughts on this? Cause I, I feel like you're more analytical, analytically minded and, I, I kind of see things more from, or I see things many times from your perspective on this. Cause Watt KG, like if you have, it's almost like a, you must be, it's tempting because there's a part of it. It's like, you must be this tall to ride this ride mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But then at the same time, there's also circumstances where it doesn't quite matter as much. You've exemplified that with all the racing you've done. Yes, it is a curve. So it'd be cool to be able to calculate this, but the, there is a relationship between and Watt KG, what your absolute Watts or your weight is, right? inside of there um i guess maybe it's probably the absolute watts where if you're on a flat course you can have a really high watt kg but have big problems unless you're very tactical uh or some kind of sprint but it can also if you are uh if you have a really high ftp and a low watt kg you can do really really well on a flat course and there's probably i'm going to just say in my experience as a bigger rider you can drop people on a flat course with being one watt kg less than them but there's a there's a there's a limit to that like there's not a you can't be two or three like that then once you start getting really steep um 
you get it to like a 6% grade, probably the same walk KG is going to climb the same, but the steeper you get with physics, it's the lighter rider is going to have benefit too. In general, it's a pretty good, you know, if, if you're, especially relative to you, if you're at four Watts KG or you're at three Watts KG and you go to 3.5, you're, you're going to be faster all around. Uh, for John and I, if we're the exact same walk KG, he is probably going to climb faster than me is John. What's your weight? 150, 145, somewhere in there. 155 right now. Oh, yep. well, before you're racing, well, you're triathletes, yeah. you're jack now. Yeah, yeah. 150 was typically like 145 to 150. I'd be somewhere in between there. Okay. Right now I'm between 150 and 155. So it's 40 more pounds. I would generally have an advantage because at the same walk KG, you're going to have more watts on a flat race than John. He would have an advantage on a steep race. Of course, to, like there's so many other things too with tactics and stuff that is going to make a huge difference. I, I mean, tactics could easily play one watt KG in a flat race like difference. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. it, someone who's the same weight as you, who is one watt KG more than you, if you're smarter than them, you can beat them for sure. Uh, but then as you yeah. get to the really steep races, there's going to be a minute where you can just be as technical as you can. But if they're one watt KG higher than you, and there's a 20 minute climb, mm-hmm. like say goodbye, they're, they're just going to beat you. Uh, so it, it is yeah. more than just absolute watt KG, but it really depends on the course. Yep. Ivy, do you, do you have something to add in? Sorry, I couldn't tell. Okay. I want to just share one thing on this. <clears throat> if you are the, the way to do this, regardless of your watt KG is to race efficient, efficiently. Like we've always talked about, watch our race analysis videos. You're going to get great insight from that on how to race efficiently. Um, Ivy just did one on one of my races. It's coming up soon. It was fantastic. It was nice and crispy with the takeaways. It was good. Um, so, uh, but watch those race analysis videos to learn to race efficiently. doesn't matter what your power to weight ratio is. That's important. And one thing that I've seen with athletes that either have huge power or that have a really good watt KG on a climbing course, it's easy to race inefficiently because you feel like, oh, this is easy for me, but then it ends up biting you because, you didn't race efficiently. So race efficiently, fuel well, nourish yourself, give yourself the best chances of success by giving yourself as much fuel as that you can tolerate. And if you do those sort of things, in this case, Dom, if you are taking care of all those other details, somebody with one watt KG higher than you might get beat because they fueled terribly or because they raced terribly. So don't let it ever be a determinant of your potential or your outcome. Just go out there, do the best with what you have, and you'll be surprised at what you'll be able to do. And number one, you're already on the high end of the bell curve anyway. So like, like you're, you're average to high right now. So in, in terms of very focused cyclists that we're talking about, so you're probably okay here, but speaking to everybody, just do the best you can to stack the deck in your favor. And that's the sort of thing that ends up leading to really good race results. So, uh, yeah, just Try to get your watt kg higher through training always. Of course. Yeah. Raise the power, but make sure that you don't just use that as an excuse to race inefficiently. Uh, really good question from Chris. Uh, he says, not all weight is created equally, surely muscle slash fat mass. And that's a really good question is actually weight is weight, right? But in generally, if you see a rider with more lean muscle mass than fat, they're probably going to have a better watt kg, but at the same exact power output and weight, it doesn't matter what their distribution is for, for fat and, um, and muscle mass because it's the same weight. And if they have the same power, uh, you can think of it it's, it's a lot easier to think of this as like a, a motor in a car or something like that. As if you have a, an object that is weighs one ton 
and you have these, this much horsepower watts moving it, it doesn't matter what's inside that car. If it's jellyfish or iron bricks or feathers, right? We're like, what weighs more, a ton mm-hmm. of feathers or yeah. a ton of bricks? As a kid, you're like, <laughs> yeah. a ton of bricks because that's heavy, like denser, sure. right? But it's the same weight because yeah. it's one ton. Yep. Yeah. I want to, and and we aren't going to go over the chart that's really uh, often referenced, right, Chad? The Andy Coggin chart where it talks about Cat One is needs to be this, this, and this overstated. in order to like be a Cat One. Yeah. It's absolutely overstated. Uh, I don't Chad, know the last time they updated it either. I, I don't know if that's something that still gets worked on. If they're still dumping data into it and and further informing their initial suspicions, or if they're just relying on the same data that formulated it in the first place. Well, you've countered this, Chad. A race like Nevada City Classic, which is just counter it every time I saddle up. Yeah, I've never been a guy where my numbers make sense relative to my performance. Because you're savvy racer, you know. It's a number of things. It can be all the things we talked about. Maybe I just got my fueling right that day. Maybe my motivation was high. Maybe my warm up was good, or my warm up got in my head, or I'm in my head right now. I mean, all all these things that (laughs) that that are variables on the day. Uh, honestly, I think I raced better when <clears throat> I had less fitness because I was uh, I was just limited in the things I could do. I think, like you said, Jonathan, having big power allows you to do kind of dumb things, and you can get away with those dumb things <laughs> when your level of competition is you know cat five, cat four. But as you move into the higher ranks, you you have to be smarter and smarter. You can't just be faster. You can't just be stronger because you're coming up against riders who are on a pretty level playing field. But you go through these uh, this whole learning progression where I, I can do anything and just dominate. Well, you'll hit a point where that's that's no longer true, and it's a really hard lesson to come up against. That leads well into our race analysis, Ivy. It's going to tease it well, right? Uh, you're pointing out me doing that very thing <laughs> in a race. The, yeah. the, um, oh my, I lost it, but I want to say it. What were we just talking about? Chad in Nevada City Classic. Oh, yeah. Talking about him racing efficiently. Yeah. So that, yeah. that Coggin graph, if you, you, a lot of cyclists have seen it where it's, um, and by the way, Dr. Coggin, amazing. Uh, it was oh, built, yes. I think yeah. it was made 15 years ago, something like that. And yeah. all due respect to him, we do have more data than Coggin has now, um, than Coggin did then, back in the day. And maybe at the pro, highest level, it is correct. But at those lower levels, um, it is, overstated so it seems to break down yeah you have to be it says it's much stronger than what you really need to be to, to race at those levels and it can be i think demotivating because you look at it and you're like oh i'm just like a you know like what would a- just like dom right exactly. in this case yeah the dom's facing the same thing let's mm-hmm. see what i would be i was at bu- 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 i was like four so i would be a kind of like a cat three maybe somewhere in cat three and you know, I was, I was well. It says I was I'm just okay. Yeah, you're, you're just okay. <laughs> you're just okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, for the woman's side, and I would be like an okay cat three person when I competitive in podium and cat two races. Uh, and if there was more, I swear I would have won some cat twos. I, I, I think I could have been competitive in some, in some ones with the right team. But in general, that is, that's why I think maybe, maybe it's one wakiji off, something like that, but. Um, don't, here's the point. Yeah. Don't let this graph limit you. 
Go out there and race, build those pots like a thousand times, see what happens and don't have any number hold you back. This That's the theme for this whole episode. Don't have a specific number hold you back and prevent you from doing something because you look at somebody else, somebody else says something. Uh, there's so many other factors, but relative to yourself, increase your numbers because that's what you can do. And you'll, if you increase relative number uh, relative yourself, you will get faster. Absolutely. Boom. Show's over. Have- Thanks everyone. See you next week. <laughs> I want to do that, but we have one more topic that we should cover. We put it in the title, and it's something that we haven't covered very often, so I feel like we should discuss it. Okay. Uh, it's from Lucy. Nate, that was a darn good ending. Let's cut and paste. Let's know, just right? like change it around. I'll just right? do it again. Yeah. Boom. Okay. We're done. See you yeah. all next week. Thanks for the show. <laughs> <laughs> Tip your waitress and waiter. Lucy's, Lucy says, thanks for the amazing podcast and training platform. I had to answer a question on who, ha- who has influenced us in our life and work the other day. <clears throat> And you guys were one of the first answers to come into my head. That's awesome, Lucy. Thank you. Mm. Um, I have a question about ultra hilly racing or ultra. And when I say ultra, I'm talking about ultra endurance, by the way. <clears throat> Forgive me. Race cough from last night. Let me take ultra a drink. Ultra hilly racing. <clears throat> Juniors destroyed me at short track last night. <laughs> and uh, it, the sound is still here. So. Uh, I understand the concept of normalized power and trying to minimize our variability index or ride as close as possible to normalized power for maximum efficiency. <clears throat> but I'm training for multi-day endurance races. As an example, the next one is 1,000 kilometers, 15,000 meters of climbing. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Over three days, choosing your own routes and rests. They are usually in very hilly areas, and especially given that I'm carrying all my own kit for the three days, even with the twiddliest of gears, I will be going way over target power on a lot of these hills. And as I will be descending on a lot of those hills on poor surfaces in the dark with sleepy sheep wandering into the roads, I won't be holding max power on the way down either. That seems like a safe choice, Lucy. So good job. (laughs) So I normally average about 60 to 65% FTP over the approximate 20 hours per day. Sorry, this is really cool. Lucy's backing up something that we've talked about when we talk about pacing, how it's not a linear relationship. It's not like it steps down. Like when you have these long events, you can actually hold a higher amount than you think for those really long durations. It's not that far off from what you'd see you holding for something like like six hours or eight hours, and they can stretch it to 20. It's pretty cool. So, uh, okay. And then she says, uh, let me drop in. She says this will include rest stops for the 60 to 65% FTP that she'll hold. And she has a VI of about 1.25 to 1.3. So that's actually like a fair amount of variability that she has just due to, I'm sure, the nature of the rolling up and down and having to coast and such. So my question is, when I'm on the flat and everything is easy, and she says that in quotes, what power should I aim to hold? 60% of FTP, which seems very slow, or do I accept that my normalized power is skewed because of all the hills? And so that's why it's artificially low and I should go a bit faster. I don't think it makes any difference to the question, but if it does, I am 60 kilograms FTP of 227 up another two Watts this week with the AI FTP detection function. So thanks for that because there's no way these tired legs are going to do a test. So what a great example of this, right? Mm-hmm. Of it. Like, like, yeah, that your training is important. Like you don't need to derail it with uh, doing an all out capacitive effort. So thanks for everything you do from Lucy. There's a lot to cover on this one. Nate, do you want to kick us off? No, I don't, because I don't have the math off the top of my head on what the proper one is on this. Cool. Uh, I have some thoughts that I want to kick off with, and then we can go through. Uh, So 
with pacing on this one, the question is when she's on the flats and, and in this case, Lucy can control the power when they're in that situation and they can control the power. It's not being defined by a climb and they're not on a descent. What sort of intensity should you ride at? And I'm going to go back to coach Chad wisdom that he always says. And what Chad says is that data should not replace perception, but inform perception, right? And it can sit there when you're talking about events this long, Lucy, it, it's, it is important to certainly put limits on yourself with numbers. I feel like to make sure that when you can control the power, you're not riding too hard, but it's also not beneficial to probably, if you're riding on the flats and you're 15 hours into this long race and then to feel like, well, I need to hold 65%, even though it feels really hard. That's just what I need to hold right now. I don't think it's a truly wise idea. That said, if you think about where this roughly falls with like your ventilatory thresholds, in, in my mind, for this sort of effort, when you're in the flats, you can probably maintain decent speed by sticking around that VT1 sort of range, maybe going just slightly above the spot where it's starting to like, instead of being able to just speak comfortably, you're starting to maybe squeeze words in between breaths just a touch. Um, so that's where personally I would be sitting. So that's right around typically somewhere around 60 to 70% FTP. So I think you're on the right track in terms of where you'd want to be. Um, but the one thing I just want to say is I would not want to hold that as a hard and fast rule, right? Because I mean, 20 hours riding through the night and everything else, a lot of stuff happens and you go through big waves. Like even if you're feeling well, you're just, your body's going to go through some, some pretty crazy experiences. And as a result, you might have to just coalesce sometimes and just go a bit easier. So I would set it as a ceiling. I wouldn't be going above 70% FTP in those situations, but I'd certainly allow myself the grace to be able to go lower. Ivy, you have anything that you want to add to this one? Yeah, I mean, that pacing strategy has to be assessed each day, I think, especially when it's multi-day, you don't know how you're going to sleep. Um, riding through the night like that is crazy. Staying on top of your fueling and nutrition when you're trying to do that can be hit or miss. I don't think applying any sort of catch-all pacing strategy will be effective. Yeah, I'd agree. Chad, do you have anything to add to this one? Yeah, I think you guys have both nailed it. And, and gold stars. I mean, you've clearly been listening because th- this is not a situation where you say, I'm going to do 65% because I know what 65% feels like and I, I can do this. Well, do you know what 65% feels like on day two, on seven hours into day three? Because it's going to feel <laughs> drastically different. So rather, it's, it's going to be more a situation where you're riding at what you think is 65%. You look down, it's like, mm, it's 55, whatever. That, that, that's what I got right now. So that's what that feels like when I'm this tired. But it's not going to be this, oh, I need to I need to be here in order for this to be a successful endeavor. You need to survive it. You need to hang in there. So you need to be paying more attention to how you're feeling than what your numbers are telling you. So important. Really good example of... Sorry, John, yeah, but sorry. so important yes. for that, those multi-day huge things. Iron Man 2, you're, you're, you're below your target, but you feel awful. Don't stick to that target. You have to be able to adjust on the fly. And what Amber will tell you many, many times is uh, all of us too, along races, that it might be temporary, right? That feeling of bad and just mm-hmm. go with it and know that it will pass. Have you, have you all done long races where you feel horrible totally. and then you kind of, you, you accept it. You don't try to push through it. Like you don't try to push above it. You maybe eat and drink some more. And then 20, 30 minutes later, you're like, oh, actually I'm back. Like, Someone resurrected me with some paddles and I can now put out power. again. You're all shaking your head. Yes. Right. Right. All the time. Yes. But if you would have 30 seconds later, better than me, but if you would have stuck to your power, like just as a robot, 
like you, you probably would have pulled over and, and dropped out of the race, right? No, but I'm not even trying to make a joke. I'm just trying to say you can wax and wane so so quickly on such a compressed time frame that that from minute to minute you're like, oh, I've got this. Oh, I think I'm coming back. Oh no, this is definitely over. Oh no, I feel great. I'm good. All of that can happen so rapidly in such quick succession that you you can never really have it figured out. So I think above all, just just be patient with yourself. What I really like, oh, I remember this in Lost and Found, seven-hour race, I think I did, or some, some race was seven hours. When you feel bad, if you're next to somebody who also feels bad, mm-hmm. you start talking, slows you down, but also rise, raises your spirits, right? You're like, oh, you, yes. this sucks. You hate this too? I do too. And then suddenly you start <laughs> liking it because you have two people who hate being in prison together. And you're like, we can't stop. We have 50 more miles. Uh, Misery left the company. Yeah, then you're yeah. like, hey, you want to work yeah. together? You're like, sure. And then you start doing it and then it feels good. Uh, the motivation is, is yeah. crazy. Well, this is actually, and it operates on different scales, even day to day, uh, stage like quitting was never an option at Cape Epic. Simply not. It was not mm, an option, right? It's an option. And if, <laughs> well, if we were injured, right. But for Brandon and I, we were like, no, we are like the only way that that, that we don't finish this thing is because we physically can't, that's it. And but after stage five or the second to last stage, so I guess it would have been stage seven or stage six. I was so downtrodden, so destroyed. I just like for two days, just death march through mud is what I felt like. And it was so hard. I thought there was no way I could finish. My best day was the last day. And that's like a good reminder that even when you go through situations where you feel like it's not operating on small scale, it's just getting worse every single day. Um, what is it? That line from office space when he's talking to his therapist and he's like, I feel like every day is the worst day. And then the next day is actually the worst day. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, that's must be terrible. That was Cape Epic for me. It was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse every day. I had no clue how I do it, but I get across that finish line. And then the last day was my best day. And so a lot of that comes with allowing yourself to accept the conditions on the day and say, this is what I have. And I'm going to give everything that I have with what I have, but I'm not going to demand too much for myself. I'm just going to give what I can do And on these day to day sort of things and these ultra events. Yeah. Lucy, it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job of building the aerobic fitness that you need. If you're this on it with everything here, I bet you're on it with your fueling too, but that's a big thing, making sure that you're keeping up on that. But the pacing aspect, um, once again, if it's a 40 K TT, I'm going to be real strict with myself and I'm going to stick to those numbers. If it's a multi-day event like this, I'm going to put ceilings on myself to make sure I don't get over anxious, but I'm going to give myself grace and be able to execute as I need to within that. So good luck. All right. Yeah. Exciting. Uh, Angela Chang. I don't know if, did I mention this already? Mm -hmm. uh, Angela Chang, successful athletes podcast we did with her. She's amazing. Um, she rode, she did one in BC, Chad, basically riding. So riding from, I think it was Flanders, BC, all the way over across. She like multi-day event. She used trainer road to prep for it. Ultra athlete, super impressive. Megan Hackenin, another, she was the 24 hour time trial world champion. And she used trainer road to prepare for that. We have another successful athletes podcast with that. I know we don't talk about ultra stuff very much. Um, we don't have like ultra plans or anything else like that within trainer road, but go listen to those podcasts that we have the successful athletes podcast to hear how athletes have used trainer road to, to prepare for it because it's absolutely a fantastic way to do it. Uh, it's all aerobic fitness, right? And it just pays off. So, and good luck to Megan and Angela, cause I know they have events coming up on their calendars, super exciting stuff and really inspiring people too. So everybody, I didn't destroy the stream. It worked. 
Thank goodness. Good job, John. Uh, Maxine, we miss I've, you so much, though. I don't get yes, better. Yes, Maxine, please come back. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Heal well. Uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. In between now and then, though, please go to trainerroad.com and sign up. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give it a thumbs up. Keep an eye out for race analysis videos and science of getting faster. We're working on both of those as we speak. Uh, so then you'll be able to get even more content there. And give this video a thumbs up. Rate on Spotify. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.